Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Friday, December 22nd. We are here live. It is Trucking Technology and Efficiency Day. It's also a Friday free-for-all. It's also the last day before I go on vacation for a week. I need it. So uh, let's have some fun today. I've got some things I want to talk about here. I believe we're going to be joined by Joel, Alec, and Henry. Um, we did hear from John earlier this week on a space, but I think he might be skiing somewhere today. So we will uh, we'll get started, and we will also get to your calls. We are on, uh, I, I don't even know what to call it, our normal number. We're on the same number we were yesterday, 855 855- Nine five zero three eight three five is the number to join us. You can also use the call in button on the app that will get you in here as well. Um, join us. Pick up the phone. Dial us. Let's uh, let's get started. Let's have some fun with this today. Um, one of the things I want to talk about. I wonder how many of you have watched the live stream of Vivek Ramaswamy at Iowa eighty. Um, I actually want to get the get the guys in here um, to talk about this as well. Uh, Joel's here, so I'm going to bring Joel in right now, and Joel and I can get started on some things. Uh, Joel, good morning. Uh, good morning, Kevin. How are you? Good. Did you happen to catch that? Have you seen that live stream yet? I have heard people talk about it. I have not had a chance to sit down and look at it yet. So I've been talking about Ramaswamy since he uh, came on the scene. Um, I'm pretty impressed with the guy. I don't know what to think about him because he's such an unknown still. He he really came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. His background, I think he's their first or second generation in this country. I think his parents emigrated over. Um, He came from the high-tech medical world. I mean, he built a very Uh high-tech medical company. He's probably worth a billion dollars or something. I'm not sure. He's been very, very successful in the business world. He's so young, he almost didn't qualify for this presidential election. He made it by days, I think. That's how young he is. Mm. But he has been saying a lot of the right stuff. Like, if you just listen to what he says, if, if he's absolutely true and sincere, and these are all the things he would do, and again, he's an unknown. Um, he speaks really well, but more than just speak well, if you listen to what he's saying... He's saying all the things many of us have been saying for a long time about what's wrong with this country. Now, the president can't change much of anything if we don't get a good Congress and all those other things. But one of the first things he started talking about and and hasn't stopped, and he's been very clear about it, it would be his goal on day one to start getting rid of alphabet agencies in the government, big ones. That we need that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, he he thinks the Department of Education should disappear, and I completely agree. There is no reason for us to have a federal Department of Education. That's a state and local issue, mm-hmm. and the federal department is just a total waste of money and resources, and it makes things worse, not better. He's even talked about eliminating agencies like the EPA because he believes that mm-hmm. we've given these these bureaucrats, unelected bureaucrats, way too much control. That's not how our country is supposed to work. We're supposed to have a representative government where we get to vote for the people that make major policies that affect our lives and our businesses. And that's not the case anymore. You can vote for whoever you want, and the EPA still comes in and shuts us down. Sure. We didn't get to vote for them. 
it's it, our government has gotten way out of control. And he's one of the few people I have heard talk that aggressively about changing that. But what I want to talk about today is how here a, a, a basically an immigrant with no ties to the trucking industry whatsoever, probably has had zero exposure to the trucking industry up until this time. He nailed all of these issues. He, he is saying exactly what you and I would be saying and many, many other people that understand this industry. But here's what I really like. He gets it. I'm going to use two examples from two extremes. The ATA, because we always talk about the ATA, how they're not for drivers. Well, right. They're not. They're not meant to be. Right. That, that's not what they're in existence for. They're in existence for large mega carriers to have a lobbying group in Washington. They're not for drivers. I don't know why anybody's ever surprised about that. Now, you would think that since these giant mega carriers run on drivers, that it would be a part of their agenda, but it doesn't seem to be. I mean, we, we don't see much come out of the ATA that, that feels like it's very good for drivers. So uh, I'm going to give an example on that end, and then we'll go down to the other end, the, the new association we've all been fighting with, um, NOOA or whatever the hell. So here's, I'm going to read this. Um, one chunk of Ramaswamy's policy urges the DOT how to retain drivers. What do we hear from the ATA? Driver shortage, driver shortage, driver shortage. Well, okay, why aren't we talking about the real problem? It's not a recruiting problem. This industry is a recruiting monster. I mean, I can't imagine anybody being better at recruiting than trucking. How could you not be when you have a hundred percent turnover? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, right? like in my uh, my LinkedIn feed, I probably have forty headhunters a day. Saying, hey, you need drivers? We recruit. So, yeah, you're you're exactly right. We, you're exactly we, right. We are the recruiting industry. We're so damn good at it. How does a company with ten, fifteen, twenty thousand drivers and a hundred percent turnover stay in business? Exactly. So, but all you ever hear is the driver shortage. Here's a guy who doesn't even, obviously he went and did his homework, but even with no background in the industry, he nailed it. We don't have a truck, we don't have a trucker shortage as we're taught to believe, Ramaswamy said Thursday. What we have is a retention problem. And what we have right now, especially post-COVID, is an environment where in that short window, where there was a sharp demand, a lot of people were able to get a truck and use debt to do it. But now we're burned on the opposite side when we have a glut of supply. So in one short paragraph, a guy with no experience in the industry showed us he knows he understands this better than the ATA and he understands it better than small business owner operators who still deny that supply so, and demand is an issue. Yes. Yeah. So this is a sad statement to have to make, but, um, and it's going to piss a lot of people off, I, I, I'd imagine. But here's the bottom line is, is that the majority of truck drivers, owner operators out there are horrible business people. Yes. They don't understand what is intuitive to this guy that is an extremely successful business person. This, he probably looked at this and in two seconds said, I can see exactly what, because he is a true business person. You know, that, that's, yeah. He sums it up in one paragraph and we argue about this shit for decades. 
Yes. We have yes, been arguing about it. a driver shortage out, out of the ballpark yes. in, in one short <laughs> paragraph. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, it, it's not really. I mean, think think about it. like you said. This is just this is business one hundred and one. And as an industry, we argue about it for decades because we're incompetent as a as an industry. We're horrible. We're inefficient. We're incompetent. We don't understand business. We're we're terrible as an industry, and this just proves it. You brought a guy in that is not even related to the industry, and in five minutes he figured this out and and was able to summarize it in a paragraph. And honestly, all we've ever heard from the industry across the board is we don't have good representation in Washington, no matter what group. I, we all feel like we get ignored in Washington and they don't pay attention to our issues. Uh, you would almost have to believe everybody with the CDL should be thinking about voting for this guy. <laughs> yeah, you would, <laughs> right? you would think so. Um, Nobody else has but, ever shown this but, much interest or understanding of trucking. This probably this probably is only going to appeal to a very small segment of the industry that is actually conducting business where, you know, a lot of guys are out here for the lifestyle or, you know, whatever they're out here for. They're not out here conducting business. So what he is saying may go right over their head. You know, they may not even recognize the value of that little summary he just gave. To me, that's profound. It's that hugely a guy can come profound. From outside the industry. Yes, look at this and say, well, here's your problem. I mean, he fixes it in five <laughs> seconds. And we've been dealing with this for 50 years. And in five seconds, he, he fixes sums the problem. It right up. There's, yeah. th- that is huge. And, and, you know, he hasn't been in the industry, but I guarantee you is prior business experience gives them that grassroots understanding of exactly what's wrong and he's pointing a finger at it and you know he he knows how to fix this and he's he's exactly right now now listen to this paragraph where and i remember seeing this just recently but he picked up on this and it, it kind of goes to what you just said and i don't disagree with you we are horrible in this industry things would be much better i believe if we could finally solve the retention issue and keep drivers and not have this kind of turnover but listen to this the trucking industry especially employers in the large truckload space has unusually high turnover rates. Large truckload fleets saw an annual turnover rate of 94% from 1995 to 2017. Rather than boost retention, many fleets instead try to find ways to increase the number of potential truck drivers. Researchers concluded in a 2023 study that high turnover is more profitable for trucking companies than paying drivers more. Yes. They, they believe this is, this is exactly is a good why business they do model. not solve. Right. This is exactly why they will not solve the the pay issue that we always talk about. This is why the big fleets do not want to go there. It's cheaper for them to recruit new drivers, have the turnover. They don't care about the safety. They don't care about the accidents because at the end of the day, it's still cheaper for them to pay for all that than to actually pay a person what they're worth. Yep. What they're not taking, 100% right. What they're not taking into account is the overall cost to the industry and the country. And, and it may be more profitable in the short term 
than trying to solve the problem. But if we actually solved that problem, the industry would get better and the country would get better. It's a bubble, I think, and it's going to burst at some point, you know, that that this is one of these schemes that just cannot go on forever. But the big companies are going to ride it for all it's worth. You know, they're going to put out disinformation about how you could never afford to pay a driver what they're worth. We can't do overtime. We can't attach time value to their pay. All that bullshit. It's not just it's too nuanced and complex to be that simple. Right. Um, And you're exactly right. The rest of the country is paying the price in terms of accidents, highway safety, just all kinds of of different ways that we're paying the price through the back door. So I'm 100% on board with this. This is he's got this stuff, you know, just exactly right. Hey, Matt just reminded me of something. Um, If anybody wants to know more about you know, just his thoughts on business and some other things. I forgot all about this. This is how I found this guy in the beginning. I I was following him before he even announced that he was running. Um, I found him when he wrote the book, Woke Inc. He wrote a book about how this whole woke movement in our country is just destroying business. And it's just a really practical, he, he, you know, get rid of all the bullshit. and, And what are we really looking at here? Um, I forgot all about that's how I even found this guy. And then he he decided to run for president. And when I listened to him, like I said, he almost sounds too good to be true. I mean, you listen to what he says and you think there's got to be something wrong here. (laughs) Well, he's probably young enough that he doesn't have enough political baggage where he's, you know, been picked up by a lot of the handlers and and either party and, you know, spoon fed what to say, why to say it. If if you want to go, you know, this far in politics, you have to say this, this and this, because that's what. That's what we stand yeah. for as a party and, and, you know, be an ideologue instead of a, a, a guy that has his own thoughts and ideas. So obviously he's, he's spitting out what he thinks and, and that's a damn good thing. Yeah, it is. Now I don't, I don't think he has much of a chance of, of doing anything much no. other than um, I hope he stays in the race as long as possible because he gets us talking about things and he's putting out ideas that a lot of us have thought for a long time. We just don't have the kind of platform he's got right now to get that out. So I don't think he's going to end up getting elected to much of anything this time. I I doubt, I I can't imagine. I've heard a lot of people say, well, I I just wish Trump would pick him up as his VP. That's never going to happen. There's no no way Trump would pick somebody this strong as a VP. No, no, he's, He's too opinionated. Yep. They're, they're going to clash on everything. Yeah, you can't put two alpha dogs in the same room. It ain't going to happen. No. Um, and what a crazy, since we're on the election, we might as well stick on it. Um, I've never seen anything like this. Trump's been taken off the ballot in Colorado. And California's not talking <laughs> about taking him off the ballot, too. I, I, I saw that. I, I would suspect that this will end up at the Supreme Court and that'll be overturned. It has to. Um, it has to. Yeah, this that, is so I, wrong. Yeah. I, yeah. I, regardless of your thoughts on, on Trump, it, I, I'm it, not a huge Trump fan, but I, this is wrong. Uh, it, this is just yeah. wrong. Yeah, you know, talk yep. about um, giving a new meaning to the term trumped up charges. Yeah, yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. This is this is third world bullshit. It's banana republic yeah. nonsense. This should not happen in the United States 
period. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. This shit should not happen. And I'm, my guess is this is going to backfire uh, uh, in a big, big way because this is going to piss a lot of people off, and the people that are sitting on the fence are going to look at this and say this is just wrong. We're and we're, and they're going to yeah. We're making a <laughs> martyr of him, and that's not a good thing either. No, no, that that is not. I like I said, I'm I'm not particularly a Trump fan. There's some things that he does I, that I like in terms of business. There's a lot that I'm I not like. a fan right. of his. Yeah, I'm not a fan of his personality, and sometimes I think he doesn't know when to shut up. He's his own worst enemy I, at times. But <laughs> yep. wrong is wrong, and this is to me this is wrong. Um, and I'm assuming the Supreme Court's going to overthrow this stuff. Yeah, I, I think so, too. There's no way it doesn't have a huge impact. It already is. It's having, he he sure. rises to the top, and a lot sure. of that support yep. is because people are just saying, look, I'm going to support him because this is wrong. I would support him just because this is wrong. But it's wrong uh, yeah, this, that this yes. is having this much of an impact already. For example... Vivek, when I say I hope he stays in as long as he can, he probably won't qualify for the next debate. He's not getting enough numbers to qualify. That's being affected sure. by all this extra support for Trump. Sure, sure. And it, it takes up all the oxygen in the room when when things like this happen. Then the real issues like Vivek's talking about, they don't come to the surface. They're overshadowed by nonsense. And we're going to have a nonsensical election over bullshit that should have never happened. No problems are going to get solved. And we're just going to keep on doing the same old bullshit that we always do. Exactly. What a mess. Unfortunately. So what's on your mind this morning? All kinds of stuff. I got a question for you. <laughs> okay. So you'll, you'll love this. So I've got three identical trucks. I've got three drivers with identical skill levels with the identical duty cycle. One truck is making a dollar fifty a mile. One is making two fifty a mile, and the other is making seven bucks a mile. Which truck is more efficient? <laughs> There's no way to answer that question from the data you gave me. <laughs> well, obviously, if everything's identical, the, the the rate has no impact on efficiency. Is the point I'm trying to make Correct, here? Correct. Right. So, that... You know, you're right. Right. Because I mean. I, I don't know why people associate a truck with high fuel efficiency as as though it's pulse cheap freight. What? What? what <laughs> You're I, right. I don't get There's it. There's zero correlation. It's ab- absolutely mind boggling. And my companies, hey. Alpha Drivers Transportation and Alpha Drivers Testing and Consulting, we do not give business advice. That's what you do. You're with yes. taxes. You, you talk about rates. You do all, I do none of that stuff. So the rate that I make per mile for my businesses and what the breakdown is to me is irrelevant. Now I will put out that 80% of my revenue from my, both of my businesses, 80% is derived from transportation. 20% is derived from testing and consulting okay. because I want people to understand that my truck can cost justify itself out in the real world. My testing and consulting business is not paying bill on my truck that's out here hauling freight. Well, and beyond that, I, I, I don't really think I need to be releasing a whole lot of other financial information that, you know, is, it kind of gives me a... It, 
if I released all that stuff, I'd lose a lot of the competitive advantage I have on the testing and consulting Absolutely. side of things. You shouldn't um, release any so of that. I, 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 right. You know, one of the things I've seen you do, and I, I think this is all we really need to see, are the true numbers from the truck. Here's the revenue moving freight brought in. Here's what we spent. Here's what's left over. And if, and if people want to believe that you're somehow subsidizing that from the testing revenue, well, then there's really nothing you're going to do to convince them that you're not. Even if you were to show the other numbers, uh, uh, yes. they would just say, well, you made them up. Yes. Right, right. That, that's exactly right. So, so the, the thing is, um, we either trust that you're putting out the, the right numbers, and I do, that you have no reason not to put out the real numbers. I can't think of a single reason what, what it would do for you to put out false numbers. Right, right. Right. No, you're you're a hundred percent right. But I just I get a lot of that. Um, you know, people want to. Oh, it's bullshit. Well, and, and you know, you're you're making money off of advertising, exactly. and you're not make you're not a real you're 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 not a real trucker type of thing. And well, I've never never once built a company for social media services. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, you, I've never done that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I've heard this about Henry because he had struck such a strong partnership with with Freightliner and they would give him a truck and, and oh, well, you're only successful because you got a truck. No, if anything, we could say it's the opposite. He got a truck because he was successful. Freightliner so did not success correct. Freightliner yeah. did not randomly reach out to somebody and say we're going to give you a truck just for the hell of it. They 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 gave right. him a truck because they understand that he will help them improve like you've helped Volvo. It's good PR. So he did he doesn't succeed because they gave him a truck. It's the opposite. Yes, that that's 100% true and and you know these trucks there's a lot of extra work above and oh, beyond. Oh. So the, I, I'm telling you, my friend, <laughs> you talk about 15, 16 hour days. Um, you park the truck and you're sending feedback reports to engineers that you really don't want to write after driving 11 exactly. hours, but they need the information. And, and so this is, this is not easy stuff. It's not the, the kind of gravy train that a lot of people think it is. You work your ass off in these positions to be but, successful. And I, in, in any business, you have to work your ass off to be successful. But uh, this is an extra, this is a legitimate business, the testing and consulting. It takes a hell of a lot of brain power, a hell of a lot of work. And, um, yeah, you know, it's not, uh, it's just not the gravy train that people seem to think that it is. Well, here's something else that's changed in business in the last three or four or five years. Um, you know, you and I are similar in that we kind of work remote. It's not like we're in an office someplace and we're, you know, constantly going to meetings like people do in offices. So, uh, you know, I've handled all my business on the phone forever. It used to be that a, a phone call for a meeting would happen pretty quick. If you had to do a conference call, you know, you didn't do a ton of those. Zoom has changed the whole meeting landscape in business and not in a good way. Everybody wants to do mm -hmm. Zoom calls all the time now. And I swear Zoom calls take uh -huh. up twice as much time as a conference call would. Mm -hmm. But that's what everybody wants sure. to do. And, and, and we use it as a tool. I use it for my coaching. But now I can see where not only are you working 16-hour days and writing up reports in the middle of the week, they want to have a Zoom call. I, I get it sure. constantly. No, that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> you, you got it. <laughs> I, had, I had three of them on 
Wednesday, I think it was, three of them back to back. It was like four hours worth of meetings. Yeah. No, I, and I, I do this driving down the road. Yeah. Um, and, and you, you know, I, yeah. at the end of the week, when I am home, the weekends that I am home, I'll have 50 questions on Facebook or on X about things. And I'll tell you, there's times when I look at that and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, I can't I, do I know. this. I know. You know what I mean? I just can't, I can't do it. I know. And, uh, so yeah. a, a lot of my stuff has been going unanswered and, and I, I, I mean, I apologize for that because I really want to help people when I see some of the I mean, I am so loaded down with this stuff just nonstop, and and I do enjoy it. Right. But, you right. know, it it does. There comes a point, even when you enjoy it, that you reach towards the end of the week where you're like, man, I I have to step away from this. Well, I, I'm at that point where I feel like I have not had a true day off since I left on that trip back in October. And I, so I'm taking all next yeah. week off. And I don't do that very often. And, you know, I, I wish yeah, I could I have had you. some time to record some shows ahead of time. But I, but I just didn't. That's the whole point. How, how am I going to record, yep. you know, 10 to 15 hours worth of shows when the whole point is I don't have time. And that's why I need a break. Right. So. We're just going right, to have to, right, to live with right. it. Now, I hear you. And then you bump up against some guys that come out of nowhere that really, really know their stuff. There was a guy on X I was having a little bit of an exchange with. You know, he's, he's talking about temperatures inside the block when you downspeed and yada, yada. And he's got some really technical questions. I got three other things going on. <laughs> I'm trying to track with this lineup and I'm trying to answer this stuff. And they're like, oh, Jesus, you know, know, your brain's just, uh, yeah. it's, it's difficult. Hey. But, uh, that being said, the other thing that I really, really want to touch on, because there's confusion, is the the whole crankshaft stroke connecting rod thing. Um, I would like to try to explain that as well as I can again. Hey, so I have an idea. Have an understanding. We, we need huh? we need to do a Zoom call so you can show the charts and the pictures. <laughs> that helps a lot. Yeah, there, hey, you know. In spaces, that might be a, a great idea to do that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the the one thing that I, we're always taught is, is, you know, that the longer stroke engine makes more torque. All things, all things being equal. That's the problem. That is true. Right. That is true. But that's exactly right. So just to kind of demonstrate this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. You know, I, I, I've heard Bruce talk about the amount of boost that a... A, say a caterpillar makes to make 600 horsepower is like around 42 pounds of boost. Correct? They they boost it, up pretty high to to, to make that type of horsepower. Yeah, there is a formula so, to convert boost mm -hmm. to horsepower. It, it, it when oh, we're doing it, when Bruce well, does it off the top of his head, it's not completely accurate because it's a uh, that, it's not a straight line formula. No, it never is. And right. each engine is different, too, Correct. because my Volvo right. at 450 horsepower makes 42 pounds of boost. Well, so that is my your A-cert. applied force. My mm -hmm. A-cert at that horsepower rating is 50 plus. With the two turbos, it, it's mm -hmm. just a whole different animal. Now, I will say sure. that that when we go back to... You know, a, a lot of us are still in the mindset of those late 90s, early 2000s. Yes. When, when electronics yes. had really kind of peaked, the electronics had gotten much better, and we weren't dealing with emissions yet.
it's almost like that yes. that was a sweet spot for engines for a while and yes. we could take yes. the series 60 the n14 and the electronic cat and say you know those three engines were similar enough that we could make these generalizations and we were pretty accurate you know, with boost and that is, and EGT that is true. and and those yeah. three engines and and that was the core of the engines we dealt with for many many years, and we're still kind of in that mindset. Now, so yeah. many things have changed since then, and we've talked about this a lot. That the engines used to yeah. be so similar, if you knew how to work on one, you could figure out how to work on the other one, and you could even troubleshoot it the same way. That's not the case anymore. Volvo is now uh, so proprietary, the ISX is so proprietary, the Packard is so proprietary. It, we can't make those general statements anymore because when you say all things being equal, they used to be a lot more equal, and they're not now. The exact point that I wanted to make, things were a lot more close to equal back in the day. There is a huge difference today. So when we talk about torque and stroke, you know, it would always been back in the day, while well, the cat has longer stroke, right. it has more torque. Right. Because the applied force was very similar among all three engines. That is not the case at all today. Correct. So there's two components to torque. There is the distance, which is the stroke, and the connecting rod is not the lever. That just transfers power. So a long connecting rod does not mean you have more stroke. All that means is it's going up and down higher and lower in the block. You need a taller block. Co connecting rods do not impact torque. So many people believe they do. It's well, minuscule if they impact it at all. The actual torque lever is the throw on the crankshaft. Right. They're That's where the torque comes from. They're assuming mm -hmm. a long crank is like a breaker bar. Like we get more leverage, but we're not we're not using the force in that direction. So it's not having an impact on <laughs> yes, leverage. Yes. But Con what connecting rods connect connect the applied force to the crank lever, right. to the lever, the torque lever, which is the crankshaft. So it does not impact torque. A long connecting rod versus a short does not impact torque. So that's that's an important thing to understand. So journal overlap seems to confuse a lot of people. What is journal overlap? Why is it important? And so anytime you design a crankshaft, anytime you design anything mechanically, there's always give and take. If I do this, it's going to impact this and this. Maybe positive, maybe negative, and we try to balance everything out to get the most reliable, most efficient machine that we're building for a particular duty cycle. So let's take a eight inch steel shaft all right and if you lay that steel shaft out in front of you as a whole it's just straight it is a straight steel shaft let's say you have four main bearings so let's cut it into four pieces and now we have six rod bearings because it's a six it's a six so we have to cut out six six more journals out of that all right, so the torque is how much stroke the engine has. So if we take those six pieces that we cut out of that steel shaft and we roll them down four inches, now that has four inches of stroke and we, we weld them into place. Now we've got four inches of journal overlap on an eight-inch shaft when we roll them down, and that's four inches of stroke, right? Right. So if the engine has six inches of stroke, 
on an eight inch shaft. Now we only have two inches of overlap that's welded back together or cast or however they're, they're making their crankshaft. And the, the less journal overlap we have, the more vibration you have because it's not as stiff because you have less overlap between your main bearing journal and your connecting rod journal. And that's where fatigue happens. Now, I remember you talking about you had a caterpillar that broke a crankshaft. Yes. And you said it was, it was, it was metal fatigue. Absolutely was. What causes the fatigue? Vibration. Why do we have vibration? It's a very long stroke engine with very little Smoke. journal overlap, the metal fatigues, and it breaks. Yeah. That's, it's exactly That's it. right. It's not unusual to hear about a caterpillar suffer, suffering a crankshaft break because of fatigue. That is not unusual. And here's the other thing about metal fatigue, whether it's the top of the engine, like an ISX, we had issues or the bottom here with the cat. We can never see it coming. Oil samples don't help us. N nothing no, helps us. No, metal fatigue comes out of the, lots of time. And in these issues that you're talking about, it's going to be more likely on an engine design like this. But the, the problem with sure. metal fatigue failures is you don't see them coming. Sure. You can't test for it, but no. you can look at the base design right. to understand. I've got two engines with a million, a million miles on them. I got two engines. One has four and a half inches of stroke. The other has five and a half inches and they have the which, same diameter crankshaft. Which one's going to wear out faster. You know by that design right? which one is less likely to have a crankshaft failure because there's more journal overlap on the shorter stroke engine. Yeah. That's just, you, that's physics. That's, the, there's no way around that. You know what I think is confusing everybody and I know pictures would help with this. We, we probably should even schedule just a Zoom where, where we can put, mm -hmm. where it's even better than spaces where, you know, you can do a whole presentation basically with slides and pictures. And one of the things I think is confusing people is they are, they're thinking that the length of the connecting rod is a big factor when it's almost not a factor at all. It, it seems logical that if you have a longer connecting rod, you have a longer stroke, but that, that's not even close to being <laughs> it's true. Just, no, it's no, it's the just the opposite generally. That, yeah. yeah, it's the crank that determines the length of stroke, not the length of the connecting rod. Correct. Correct. Now, what the length of the connecting rod determines is it's a couple of different things. One, it determines how much thrust load you're going to put on the piston into the, uh, into the liner, you know, how hard it leans over due to that geometry. The shorter you get, right. especially on a long stroke engine, the more lean that piston's going to push into there. It also determines how tall that block has to be in order to house that longer that longer rod and most importantly is a shorter rod so you may be going down the road at the exact same rpm a shorter rod will and this is confusing i know a shorter rod will have more variation in speed right. uh, throughout the stroke although the then the average speed of the stroke is the same there's variation so what happens is that coming up the top dead center, it's slower. You get a little more dwell time, but then you get very fast acceleration away from top dead center. And then think about this on a big block engine. When you have fast acceleration away from top dead center, 
and you have a very big piston, you develop more G-force that's coming down on that crankshaft. If it's a long-stroke engine, it has less journal overlap, and it's taking more G-force because yeah. that piston is coming down at a, at a higher speed. So now you're really stressing a crank that has less journal overlap. And this goes right to Bruce's point, and he's 100% right on this, that you know replacing that damper on certain engines is absolutely critical yeah. to keep them running smooth. And it's generally very long-stroke engines that require that. And in the case of the Cummins and the Cat, they're both big bore engines that are slamming the hell out of that crankshaft because of the faster G-force of that piston and again, or the we, higher G-force loads. We go back to those, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, and it was easier to generalize and say, look, 500,000 miles is when these things are starting to deteriorate. They're not cushioning as well as they used to, and you're going to start breaking things. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was really... Yeah. 400,000 on the cat and 600,000 on the Detroit, if we got right down to it. But sure, it was easier sure, just exactly. to say, look, do it at 500,000 and everybody will probably be fine. But now we're looking no, at, that, that, you know, yes. we Volvo now all of a sudden has an external damper. And, you know, we figured that out the other day, but it, it probably doesn't need replaced that soon because of what you just described. It, it is not. It doesn't have to work as hard as the dampers on these long-stroke engines. So back in the 60s, and you will probably appreciate this, Kevin. You, you're kind of into cars. You remember coming out of, the, out of the, the 1950s, we had certain engine designs, and then you would always see these ads that said, the modern small block with lower <laughs> piston speeds, more efficient, right? This You're is right. the exact same right. thing that's happening on the diesel side now. They're applying those exact same things that the big three done when they developed their small block engines going into, um, into the diesel side of things. So please keep this in mind. I know everybody likes to say, oh, you're just a hater, and you brag on Volvo, and you hate Cummins. I'm not a Cummins fan. I'll be the first I'm not person either. to tell you that. Yeah, I'm not either. Um, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you exactly why I'm not. Um, back in the day, uh, early 90s, I had an International Eagle, bought brand new, had an N14, which honestly is a pretty bulletproof design. It's, it's very good. International had put the wrong size water pump on it, and we had some oil overheating issues. Cummins had the thing back at the factory for months and months and months. Truck wasn't producing any revenue, damn near bankrupt us. We asked them, what are they going to do for us? And they said, well, just a minute. They walked back in the office and they came out with a Cummins jacket and handed it to me. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> so so um, I'm not, not real happy with Cummins just based on, on well, that customer service experience. Um, and, and that's why I'm not. That, that started me down the path of why I'm not a, a Cummins fan. Um, just simply that. And that's just being straight up honest. That's what triggered well, that all. Well, here's, um, here's my reason for it. I've, I've been hard on Cummins for well over a decade now, but I can also go back to my first 10 years in business. It was probably all I owned. I, I could throw a couple cats mm -hmm. in there, but for the most part, the first probably mm -hmm. 10 trucks I owned, eight or nine of them were probably all Cummins. I, I was a, big Cummins mm -hmm. fan. It was all I was using until I experienced mm -hmm. a Series 60. And then that changed my mind because mm -hmm. I was really impressed with that engine. And I hadn't ever seen an electronic N14 at the time. Um, and, and once mm -hmm. I found the Series 60, I felt like this is the only engine I ever need. 
Um, I really liked it that much. But I, that still didn't mm-hmm. make me an anti-Cummins guy until about 2005, 2006, and we started to have the cam issues on the ISX. And it, it was almost like it was never resolved. They made the goofy excuse, well, we got a bad batch of cams. Well, wait a minute. That was seven years ago. Why are we still dealing with this <laughs> if it was a bad batch of cams? Then it was some other excuse. Mm-hmm. And then it was the, you know, now we had fuel pumps grenading and taking out entire engines. Then we had the fuel, the oil filter issues that were causing crankcase pressure. And I cannot think of another engine that remains this popular that has had so many catastrophic issues. So one thing to keep in mind here, look, all engines are going to have problems to one degree or another. Volvo went through their their time with injectors. Packard's having huge issues with injectors right now. Cummins is an extremely mass-produced engine. There's a, a lot of them out there, and you tend to always hear the bad and not the good. I, I get all that. But here's, here's, I guess, the point that I'm making when, when I, I say that you know Detroit and Volvo seem to be in one camp and Packard and Cummins seem to be in the other. The things that the engines have in common, the Volvo and the Detroit are much newer, modern designs, and the Cummins and the Packard are older designs. Both of those engines were designed before anybody was talking about piston speed and downspeeding. So to think that you're going to take an engine that was designed in the 90s and run it at today's downsped standards, to me, is it's it's kind of ridiculous. It's not going to happen. Right. Um, I think PACR has realized that, and they're bringing, according to John, they're going to be bringing a, a potential 14-liter into the market that's had some some major improvements. Cummins has decided to stick with the X15 slash ISX, and here's what here's what my personal opinion is on why they have done that. I think they're looking at the marketplace. They're seeing hydrogen trucks right around the corner. They don't want to spend a billion dollars developing a new diesel-fired platform, so they are going to try to modify what they have to run it out until electric and hydrogen takes over. That sounds Whether right. you agree with the strategy or not, I think that's what they're doing. They just that... they would rather take that billion dollars and invest it into new stuff rather than try to design contemporary diesel-fired engines. Not that Cummins is stupid or they're dumb or they can't design the engine. They just made the choice. We're not going to. And look, they still sell an awful lot of engines. Yes. Yes. It's not like they're right. It's it's not like this has even hurt them much. And that's most, in my opinion, that's because of a lack of understanding uh, of this issue by almost everybody in the industry. Yes. Yes. I think they probably that and said, look, most people here don't understand yeah, right. the whole downsped it's... concept. So do we really want to spend a billion dollars to develop a downsped engine and then have to spend $100 million right. to educate everybody as to why to buy it? Yeah. And they probably looked at this and said, no, we don't want to do this. We'll never break even. We don't have enough time. To yes, go- and, yes. and I will, again, yes, blame this right, on... Horrible By the time government they policies. bring that to right. market and get it, people educated, the government's going to outlaw it. And right. then what do they do? Right. They lost all that money. So so this is a yes. good business decision on their part. I, I get that. Um, I, it's also yeah. a good business decision on my part not to buy that engine. 
Yeah, well, that's the choice you have to make. Do you want to buy a dated design? And there's nothing wrong with that design if you run it traditionally geared, and you can you can get some decent efficiency out it, of it, but is that thing ever going to truly match what the Detroit Nevolvo is doing? Probably not. You know what the problem I do have with that engine? I've had it from the very start, from the first one that came out before emissions and all that. I just thought it was way overcomplicated. Well, that's the other point that I, I wanted. So we all hear the, the story about, oh, Volvos are complicated, and they... Now, you have to have a pallet full of tools, and you have to have this. It's all horseshit. If you line up a Volvo, a Cummins, a Detroit, and the new Scania Navistar, the Volvo is the simplest engine exactly. out of all of them by that, far. Uh, right. The, the ISX has always been overcomplicated, even in the computer yes. part of it. I, you know, I remember the first yes. time Leroy or one of the engineers came on and said, my God, this thing has like 600,000 parameters in the ECM. Right. Uh, it, it, yes. Yes. Yeah. And just to look at them under the hood. I mean, right. the, the fuel system on a Cummins looks like a plate of spaghetti. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it just does. There's shit running. It, yeah. every, and Detroit's not much better. Now, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. They may be getting... The, you know, the performance that they're looking out of it, but it, it is definitely more complicated. You know, Volvo's pretty straightforward. We've got the regular fuel pump. we got three pump-up injectors and then a set of, of injectors, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and pretty straightforward. Th- this isn't a huge issue, but all of these things add up to make a difference. The You talked earlier about the architecture. The block needs to be taller. Well, what's one of the problems we have? There's not enough space under the hood. We we can't build yeah. aerodynamics the way we would like to because we have to fit around this big engine. And the shorter we can yeah. make that block, the either we can give ourselves a little more room to work, which they're probably not going to do. They're going to take that space and improve the aerodynamics. So, yeah, no, you're, you're right. So in, in the final analysis, I think everybody today makes a damn good engine. I don't think there's any question about all of today's engines are far more reliable than the stuff we had coming out of the 1970s. They last longer. They're much more efficient. They're cleaner across the board. That applies across the board. Right. I don't care if it's a Cummins, a, a Packard, or what. It, it just, that's, that's the fact. Today's emission engines are getting far more reliable. Yes. And in the case of the Volvo, and and I'm going to say this because I know it from experience, we have been able to push our cost to operate per mile right down to the same level as a non-emissions diesel engine. And I know a lot of people are, oh, that's bullshit. No, it's not. But that is a a fact. Yes. Well, Um, we shouldn't even be surprised because we have a great example of this. The automotive industry went through the exact same stuff and ended up in the same yes. place. I don't even... Yes. It's a wonder I even know how to open the hood on most of my vehicles because I almost never do it anymore. Right. No, you're exactly right. And how often have we heard, and I'm going to call this an idiotic phrase, and I know it's going to piss a lot of racers off, but how often have we heard there's no replacement for displacement. You know, you hear that all the time from the racing crowd and whatnot. But you go to a Chevrolet dealership, 
1972 and you bought a 7.4 liter 454 <laughs> that made about 400. Yeah. You go in and buy a, a car with a four cylinder with a very short stroke making 500 pound feet of torque. So uh, it's just, yeah, it's, it's crazy. The technology works. It's just a matter of understanding it and how to use it best. Well, you know, uh, uh, w- the reason for that is, is uh, people our age, we grew up with big block mm-hmm. muscle cars. I mean, we love that yes. stuff. We, we love big displacement. Yes. We talk about it all the time. But the Europeans yep. have just kicked our ass with tiny little engines that perform yes. way better no. than anything we build. Look, big displacement's easy for most people to understand. Right. The bigger it is, the more the power, more power you have, yeah. the better it'll pull. You know, that's that's very easy for a guy out looking at a truck to understand. He sees a 13-liter engine with a turbo compounder hanging on the side, doesn't really understand what the blowdown unit is, thinks it's a gear-driven turbo, right. you know what I mean? And, right. and it just has it all wrong, doesn't understand it. Of course they're not going to buy that engine because they don't understand what's going on. The reality of it is it would have been a better decision. Right. Uh, and and the, the big problem we have is we got salespeople that are in that group that fundamentally do not understand the, the technology. And, you know, their truck drivers are going to salespeople depending on them to get the right story. And unfortunately, a lot of times that doesn't happen. And, you know, we, we end up with uh, the Volvo that has a 500 VGT with a 308 rear end gear and a 12-speed transmission, and now you got a driver bitching that he only gets seven <laughs> miles to the gallon. I, you know, I, yeah. I get it. Yeah. Hey, we we got to get to some calls. Mm-hmm. I think um, Henry might sure. be here with us, too. We're going to bring him in. But before I do, I want to go back to, to Vivek again. Here's just a kind of a general, almost a throwaway statement I heard him make in there, and I'm going to dig through and see if he elaborated on it. But it it caught my attention, and I really just like the way he said it. He didn't get specific, but he said, we have got to stop writing policies that punish owner-operators. Yeah. Again, it, it shows so much insight into somebody who should know almost nothing about this industry and seems to know more than many people who have been in it for a couple of decades. He is absolutely 100 percent against AB5 type laws. He said, as Mm -hmm. it stands right now, use the IRS test instead to determine if somebody is an employee or not, which we've used for decades. And then all of a sudden, the Department of Labor and California and all these other entities want to come in and rewrite those rules. And we're, we're, they are attempting to get rid of the independent contractor model. Correct. And here's somebody who's the, completely the one, against it, and yep. he gets it. Yeah. The, the one thing where what I would temper maybe just a little bit, and um, this will raise some eyebrows, I'm sure. So... You know, he says he wants to do away with EPA. <sighs> Look, I, I'm not a tree hugger by any stretch of the imagination, but, but here's I, I what I know. Be. And I know, I know well, <laughs> here's, here's what you know as well. So you're familiar with the Cuyahoga River. Oh, yeah, the one that caught on fire. <laughs> well, not just once, I know. not twice, <laughs> right. but 13 times that river <laughs> caught on fire from 1952 <laughs> to 71. 
13 yeah. times a river caught on fire. Yeah. Love Canal up in Buffalo. You're yeah. familiar with Love Canal. Birth defects, people sick. So, so I, I get it. We want to we wanna just take it to the EPA and you're bastards and you're costing me all this money. But you've got to temper that to some degree. Well, I, I agree that there's overreach in the EPA. I get that. But we just can't say, hey, let's go do whatever we want because we're going to end up here's, just like the 1950s again. Here's all I want to see changed. You can't write giant policies like that with bureaucrats alone. That's all I ask is, is that the, these kind of major policies that infect, and infect or affect an entire industry, a, a critical industry, should not be written and enforced by bureaucrats. That should be Congress only. You have to pass uh, yeah, a law. Yeah, you can't write a regulation yeah, with a bunch of bureaucrats. Yes, yes, you're you're 100 percent right. The other interesting thing that people should understand. So, Kevin, when did emissions rules come into effect for heavy trucks? There were, and I may be wrong on this because it's a compliance issue, but I was somewhat involved in this. I thought we started retuning some engines in the early 2000s, and that was the first step towards some emissions. So emission regulations have been in place since 1974 for heavy trucks. Holy cow. And the so problem goes way is, back farther yeah, than from, I thought. from 1974 to 1994, Everybody just ignored them and, and cheated the, the, the Knox requirements. Guess what? They just either ignored it or they'd flat out cheat it. And this is why we got into all that accelerated implementation of a oh, yeah, rule that, that. Right. that everybody hates. And the industry got into a whole hell of a lot of trouble over it. And, and uh, probably rightfully so. Um, you know, it, it sucks that they did accelerate it because a lot of owner-operators took it on the chin, but it was really the OEM's just casual disregard for the rules right. or even cheating the rules, which well, led to that. Uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Like to, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I'm going to say that maybe that cheating occurred because, again, we feel like we're being cheated. We're being regulated by people we don't get to vote for. I, I push back against that kind of stuff, too. I, 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 I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree with you at all. The only thing that I would just kind of point back to, you can go swimming in the Cuyahoga River nowadays. I am a tree hugger. I'll admit it. I love trees. Yes. I love the environment. I want yes. to be able to go outside yes. and breathe. And when I went down to Costa Rica and had to deal with all of our old mechanical engines because that's where those trucks end up i i was shocked yep. at how bad it was to be behind a couple of those trucks on a mountain pass you couldn't even breathe yeah yeah i, I no. don't want that no, I, I i hear you so while epa does need to be reformed i think we're both in agreement there we cannot just do away with those regulations wholesale no. fast. And we can't, that, can, that cannot happen. We can't leave it up to industry because they won't do the right no, thing. No, no. They never do. They're, it's profit before everything else, and right. then you end up with the Great Lakes that are dead and, yeah. and all kinds of stuff. So, no, you're, you're exactly right. I agree. Hey, Henry, Alec, good morning, guys. Good morning, good morning. tree huggers. <laughs> well, that's right of, hey coming coming up next week i have greenpeace joining us cool. 
Except the good news is I'm not going to be here next week, so. We'll handle it. All right, good. So, so speaking of tree hugging, go ahead, I'm here Henry. at the truck stop, and I'm and I'm sick right now. But and I got up in the morning because well, one tire was showing low, but it was just because it was cold. And what do I see? Just nails and boards and pallets all over the place where people just threw them out of the back of their trailer onto the truck stop's grass. And then, furthermore put a big urine bottle in front of the neighboring truck's tires so that when they pulled forward, it would explode, which is just lovely, right? Oh, yeah. We wonder. We, we create our own problems, right? Then on a positive side, my positive note of the week, that started out me out negative. One, I wasn't feeling good because I was sick. Two, I had a low tire going alarm going off. But there must have been a memo that went around because everybody seems to be driving so gently leading into the Christmas holiday. I, I don't know what's going on here. The last two days, it's just been pleasant. Well, good. Nice. Yeah. Alec, what's on your mind this morning? Oh, you know, I, I just got caught off guard with all this environmental talk. But, um, <laughs> you know... <laughs> Probably something that you can appreciate, Kevin, is that, um, and I know Joel will, um, as we approach the end of the year here, I'm, I'm crunching numbers, uh, you know, for accounting-wise and tax-wise and performance-wise and IFTA and everything else. So I'm knee-deep in spreadsheets and, you know, all sorts of other geeky stuff that wants done, you know, scatter charts and yeah. all the stuff about... Uh, Hey, you know, why don't you carry 80,000 pounds and see what kind of fuel economy you get? Well, actually, <laughs> we've, we've we, done we, that. We've done that. Those right. here, you, here you go. You know, so, yeah, so that's what I'm up to. Well, it, it, we, we talk about this all the time, but you, you deal with it constantly, and you guys deal with it more than anybody now, the way you put out numbers. But th when they say that... The, the implication is always, if you had to do what I had to do, you would get the same fuel economy I get. That's what they're trying to imply, and they are completely wrong. No, yeah, they are. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's not even close. But, but that's their, according to them, if you believe them, every truck on the road should be getting the exact same fuel economy because nothing matters and nothing works, according to them. You know, it's pretty odd when you say all that because, you know, Joel's been taking the heat now. Thank you, Joel. I used to take the heat. <laughs> and uh, the high water mark for me was when a guy responded in a post how my truck would not ha ha hold up for a day hauling out of the quarry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I thought to myself, and I responded, it also doesn't make a good tow truck, a cement mixer. But there, there was a whole litany of things it also was not good at because of course. Oh yeah, I didn't build it for that. Of course, yeah. right? It, yeah. yeah. All right. Hey, we I'm should. Like, what would I be going in a quarry for? I have no yeah. business in the quarry. But let's right. let let's be real. It, it, your truck would not <laughs> fail in the quarry in a day. And look, we could probably make a couple minor modifications, and it would do just fine, and it would be more efficient at it than anything that's down there now, probably. Well, uh, yeah, but I'd lose my lower parts of my well, fairing, that, possibly, that, the that's, rubber parts. That's what I mean. Right. We'd have to modify some of the aerodynamics yeah. that are going to get tore up. But other than right. that, it's the same drive line. The, I, it, 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 it's ridiculous to say that it can't do that job. 
that was my high watermark comment that I ever got. I yeah. was like, wow, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, we, we, we should probably get to some phone calls because what's happening is we've had a bunch of phone calls and we're starting to lose some. And uh, we have done an entire hour now. So I'm going to grab a call and we're going to find out what's on uh, everybody else's mind. Eric in Wisconsin. Who's, who's got the noisy line? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, figure this out. Henry, is that you? It is. Henry, you've Thank got you. a really noisy line. If you could find a quieter place, that would be awesome. Eric, go ahead. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, I'm sorry. This is, I know this is a inefficiency Friday, but uh, I got a quick question about Alberta yogurt. Sure. Um, I'm on like batch number 10 or 11 using starter every time. And uh, usually I do two quarts at a time, but this time is the only time that my wife forgot to pull it out before she left for work. And it sat in there for about an additional 12 hours at 100 degrees. So my question is, is it edible? Can I eat it? It's absolutely and, uh, edible. Is, is there any it, benefit to it? or yeah. is just yeah, kinda... it, it, No, it, you probably don't have the total bacterial count you would have had if you pulled it out on time. But it, it's absolutely still edible and it's still beneficial. It, it's still more beneficial okay. than any commercial yogurt you could ever buy. Would you continue to use that as a starter or just sure. start over with a new batch? No, it, it, that, should, okay. that should be just fine as a starter. Maybe just add a couple new tabs to the next batch. Couldn't hurt. Yeah, couldn't hurt. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again. Hey, I appreciate it. So, Merry Christmas. So just to, just to build off the yogurt comment, <laughs> it does not, I repeat, does not work well as a fuel supplement. So I just thought everybody should, should, you should be aware. Should know that, right? It, it's uh, don't don't put it don't put it in your death tank. <laughs> let's uh, let's go to Alabama, Matt. Welcome. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Um, howdy, howdy. Well, I, I've had all kinds of thoughts. <laughs> I'll bet. So I lost track of them all. My original was the crankshaft, and unfortunately, Morgan picked up right as you were explaining it, Joel. Um, Uh-oh. I, I caught about half of it, and so if you heard Tuesday when I called in and was talking to Bruce about the difference, and mm-hmm. I've been thinking all week, of, you know, a good way to try to explain this without a visual. Um, mm-hmm. So first thing, let, let, let's agree with some of the things Bruce said. Okay. He said, one engine has the longest stroke and has always been known as the powerhouse, right? Correct. You know, the color of the engine I got under my hood? Right. What? Uh, uh-huh. if everybody can go through their memory of history of engines that has had the most trouble with crankshafts. Which one was uh-huh. that? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Yellow one? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Starting with a three four zero eight, that thing was hell on crankshaft. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, um, I guess I the best thing I came up in my mind, and I don't know the numbers. You said eight inch, I believe, for diameter of a crankshaft, which is well. I was just given a, a generic way, yeah, example. I, yeah. 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 I, I'm pretty sure that's way way over reality. So uh, the old. John Deere two-stroke, Pop and Johnny. It was a horizontal engine. Uh-huh. And I'm, the only reason I'm going with two cylinders is just to keep math simple and a visual. Sure. So if we, if we started with a, I was going to use two-inch diameter straight rod sure. shaft, solid shaft. So mm-hmm. you got a two-inch bearing, main bearings, to bolt it to the block. 
Now, mm-hmm. in order to make stroke, you need to cut a piece out and move it to the side, or up mm-hmm. or down, I should say. Sure. So if you have a four-inch stroke, you have to move it two inches. So sure. you get yep. two-inch offset, or no, excuse me. Yeah. So if it's two-inch diameter crankshaft and you have yep. to move it off two inches, you, you've completely lost all overlap. <laughs> Correct. You go to a five-inch stroke, you have to go two and a half inches off center, because as it goes around, mm-hmm. two and a half one way, two and a half, that adds up to your five. Now, you're, the amount of counterweight you need on that crankshaft just to keep it from not bending is Correct. incredible. You know the problem we're going to run into here? With any kind of visual description without showing them the picture (laughs) is the only people who might be able to visualize this are people who know what a crankshaft and journals look like and what the lobes it if you don't if you've never taken an engine apart and physically done this or seen this none of these visuals are going to work yeah that's the problem to matt's point here the the crankshaft is the building correct. foundation yes. of an engine. That, that That is correct. And that's important to keep in mind. And then it's up to the person to decide, okay, I'm willing to accept this much risk on a crankshaft failure because I want this much performance. Or I want more durability and reliability long-term, and I'm willing to give up this much performance for that durability and reliability. It's all a balancing act, and there is no right or wrong answer. Right. It's what you right. prefer. Yep. Yeah. So <laughs> this is pure opinion, and there's no logic behind it. But you guys are saying why, you know, you don't personally like Cummins engines, and I've never mm-hmm. liked them either. I've never owned one. So my, mm-hmm. I don't even have, I've driven them as a company driver. But my reason, I don't like the way they sound. <laughs> me, they, there you go. <laughs> the firing of the cylinders, they just have this strange little pop, and it sounds hollow, and it, I can't stand it. Yeah. It's, well, I'll tell you, that's why I would not buy a 60 Series Detroit with the early VGTs, because they sounded like vacuum cleaners, and I just wouldn't do it. <laughs> I'm like, I am not driving an engine that sounds like that. You remember? You guys remember how they, oh, they yeah, sounded with the they first did. VGTs? Oh, my they, God, they were horrible. They were. And we had just come out of two strokes at the time, and it, I said, I'm not it, buying a noisy engine that sounds like a two-stroke. I'm not doing it. Kind of reminded you of the two-strokes, exactly. Yep. yep. Well, I must be odd. I thought that sounded cool back when the, there, there used to be a Cummins. There was a lot of them at my wallboard plant. When they were moving around, they just sounded like they were whistling across the parking lot, like ready to launch off like a jet turbine or something. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So, uh, Henry, uh, last week you brought up again about the external combustion engine, which yeah. I have always been a fan of. I absolutely love history and all that. You need to go read or listen to the book, The Mysterious Case of Rudolf Diesel. Since listening to that book, I mean, the whole book is interesting on its own, but I've completely changed my mind about steam engines. So. I've listened to this a lot of stuff on Rudolf Diesel. Yep. Yeah, Sadly, the, the book, if I remember right, yeah. he committed suicide in the end, didn't he? Well, that's the mysterious case. Well, it's, it's a mystery book. It's a history book. Yeah, and I don't want to give away the conclusion they come to in the book because you know it's a necessity to read the book. It's it's 
it's a history lesson. It's a mystery. And, I mean, it's factual, too. So, yeah, I mean, most of us, even people that are into engines, there, there's a lot of things I never knew about the history of him and diesel engines and all kinds of stuff. I forget the brand of it, but I used to, or I have posted about it already, and England steam trucks were really, really popular because they have a lot of coal. And and it's pretty cool. They got one over there. They run around, and you see the guy with his little shovel putting coal in the, the boiler, and down the road he goes. And the thing moves right along. Yeah. See, in the book, they'll, they'll point out the inefficiency of any type of steam engine, even though the, oh, yeah. the fuel sources, you know, are much more vast. You can, like you say, all you need to do is build heat to build steam. So any type of fuel, but there, there's always a huge loss there compared to internal combustion. Sure there is. Well, an engineer explained that to me. Anywhere where you transfer the energy from one form to another form usually involves generating and lost heat, and anywhere you lose heat is lost energy. In fact, diesel is so powerful that we have to put a cooling system on the engine because we can't contain all the energy that diesel has without melting down the engine. Um, And then uh, one more thing, if you've got plenty of calls, I'll let you move along. The, uh, what is it, 826? international engine Mm -hmm. i well i personally am not going to be involved but i'm going to have access to all the data my trailer is going to be involved uh i have a friend of mine that's getting one to test for a week and Uh it's going to be one of his company drivers going to take my trailer make my round oh nice it's it's not going to be you know huge data for us because it's a you know dealership spec truck you know we're not choosing any specs or anything like that so it's we're not really going to be able to compare nice. it apples to apples to anything, but it's going to be uh, neat to see. Yeah, well, interesting. Yeah, keep for us sure. informed. That'll be so, good to see well, because pretty much out here in the forums, that's the two you see the most of on data: Detroit and Volvo. Detroit and Volvo, Volvo and Detroit, for the most part. Yeah, it'd be nice to have a couple other good options. Yeah. So, yeah, I hope everyone has a Merry Christmas. And, Kevin, just like you, I'm taking a week off next week. So Perfect. I'll let everybody else do some work. There you go. All right. Good You're talking to you. You're not coming on to be with Greenpeace? Uh, I think Greenpeace <laughs> is, is going to be by themselves next week. Uh, all right. <laughs> all right. So we, we had a ton of calls, and I think they got tired of waiting. They all hung up. We have one left. And if uh, you want to jump in, we've got lines open. 855 855- Nine five zero three eight three five. We'll hang out for some more calls, or we'll wrap this up and start Christmas early if you want. Um, let's go to Oklahoma. Paul, welcome. Howdy. What's on your mind today? I, I I've been I've been in and out of the car doing Christmas goody shit, but so I haven't heard everything. But I'm a tree hugger. That's my retirement. But I'm also a fossil fuel fan because we need to burn fossil fuels to feed the trees. Both of, the, both of those things can be true. You you can be a tree hugger and an environmentalist and want a good, clean environment, and I do, and, and I'm okay with regulations around that as long as they're, they're reasonable and we have some say in them. Um, and I am a huge fan of internal combustion engines. I would have been a fan of electric. I was. The government has completely turned me off from electric. I don't even want to hear about it anymore. Yeah. Well, the last few weeks... I've been delivering lots 
of hybrid cars. And one thing that annoys me, the, the hybrid version of the Dodge Hornet is about 400 pounds heavier than the fossil fuel only version. So that car goes from 3,700 pounds to 4,130 or something. Yeah. About, or four, yeah, 4,100. So, but I don't get paid it. The vehicles are exactly the same size, but I don't get paid any extra for hauling that extra 400 pounds of weight. Yeah. Times eight or ten or whatever I put I, on. Yeah, so, I was just going to say, if you get ten of them on there, that's a pretty big deal. Y'all are, Isn't that something how heavy cars have become? I mean... You would think with all the aluminum and different things they use on them that they'd be light, but they're a lot heavier than the cars of the 60s. Well, I, well this, all yeah, you have to do is look little, under the hood to see why. Remember, you used to be able to look well, under that, the hood that, of a car and identify every single part. You could find the starter. You could find the distributor cap. and But all that stuff was right there. You can't see any of that now. Now you look under the hood and there's well, no space anywhere and you don't know what anything is. Well, it's covered but up with part of it is and they highlights the pieces they want you to touch the dipstick and the windshield <laughs> washer fluid and that's it. right yeah. parts of that are all the collision requirements because those old cars of the 60s as much as we loved them they weren't so good you, in a crash you, you know what's incredible if you look at the difference if you go back to the 60s when cars were in horrendous crashes, the car didn't suffer all that much damage, but the people were dead. Now, yeah. you look at these cars and they look like they they are toast. It looks like somebody crushed an aluminum can, and yet everybody walks away. And that is yeah, well, part of why. It's, to fold in a, it, correct. It's all those, yeah, they're designed to fold in a certain manner. It's all those crumple zones that take up the energy of the impact, and that's why we survive. And we're, we're surrounded by a bunch of marshmallow airbags. So cars have gotten incredibly safer, no doubt about that. Yeah. So my old truck that had the C-16 Caterpillar and Pittsburgh Powered rebuilt the end. They built it, and it was... I don't know what horsepower it was, but I'm thinking it was probably up over 700 <clears throat> because I could go west on I-24 going up Mont Eagle at 80,000 pounds and split top gear and never go below 56 mile an hour. My Cummins won't do that. <laughs> yeah. But I don't understand why people that want to buy a new truck now want to put a 25-year-old remanned Caterpillar in it. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 had the, I had the big cat. I liked it. I'll be honest. I kind of liked it more than my ISX, but I'm not planning on buying another one or either of them. Because it's time to move on. Were, were any yeah. of you guys on the call when we had that, when we've talked about this issue? Guess not. I did, I did the, not. There, the, all all I the a, people in Nebraska. I had a call that there's this company in Nebraska, some dealer, that... Boot companies. To, to, and I don't even understand all the details. I think they were buying brand new trucks. Then they are yanking the motors out and putting old cats in them. And first off, I said that's illegal. And then they claim that they're using a, a what's called an assembled title and that it is legal. And I'm not sure that it is. I, I, and if you go to try to figure anything out, again, we have so many government agencies. The EPA says one thing. The DOT says something else. And it is really hard to figure out. To me, this is not a glider. So the glider rule doesn't count. 
this thing was titled as as a, a new level of emissions. And from what I can gather through the EPA, you can't alter those emissions. But the, but I even went beyond that. How do you ever afford this? And why would anybody want to spend that kind of money? You're buying a brand new truck with their expensive. The cost of pulling that thing out and putting an older cat in there is is really high. And you end up with a horribly compromised vehicle. My question or my thought is, what the hell would you want the cat for to begin I know. with? I I I but I mean <laughs> here here's here's the deal with this with cats specifically and I owned a ton of the damn things when we first started our fleet the first when we finally done a real fleet our first trucks were C12s horrible yeah. as far as reliability <laughs> terrible cracks in the heads between the valves uh pitting in the piston liners I mean they were just horrible so you know, Cat worked with us, and they said, well, they're the small ones, you need a 3406Es. So we buy a bunch of Kenworths with 3406Es. <laughs> Horrible. Just atrocious fuel efficiency, very expensive on parts, very high. There is a reason Caterpillar is not producing on highway engines today, and it's not because that was the best engine ever built. No. I, I, went, I, they're, they're, I went through a Cat phase. And, and it well, I'm thinking is this guy that converted them. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking this guy that converted them could nail a six penny nail in with his forehead. Yeah, I, I went through a, <laughs> a, I, I went through that cat phase, and mine didn't even last about two years. I bought several of them, and then decided I just don't want any more of these. No. Well, that, now every the, they were never never a popular fleet engine because fleet people can quickly amass data on reliability because they have so many units running. And there was a reason not a lot of fleets ran cats. They were expensive. That's the best way to sum it up. They were expensive. They were were heavy. They didn't get good fuel efficiency. Uh, There's just, and we got owner operators that, you know, they will swear up and down that it's the greatest engine ever built. And it's, it's like a a religion almost that follows them. I I, (laughs) look, look, I get it. If you're into horsepower, that's all fun. If you're, if you have to be to the top of the hill first, okay, I get it. But does that really pay the bills? Yeah, not in my book. I, I, I you know what? I, on top of Mount Eagle, there is not a guy up there with a checkered flag <laughs> hanging out, handing out thousand dollar bills. If you go up and over that, the first truck up, that doesn't happen. Well, that can't, uh, I don't get it. Being going uphill is the least thing you do all day. Why you spend so much well, effort on going uphill? From what I, oh, I, I'm from, with you, Henry. From what I've seen so far <laughs> of the little bit of results we've got, shouldn't all those cat fans really love the Tesla truck? <laughs> well, yeah, but, <laughs> you, but you would think it, so, it, right? It's going to go uphill faster <laughs> than any internal combustion engine we have. So, yeah. so how I look at that with getting up the hill first. And, and I look at it from a racing perspective. If you can skip a pit stop because you did better on fuel than everybody, it's pretty hard to catch you. It is. And yeah, efficiency goes a long it, way. Any, any time they gained going up that hill, I am going to pass them and more from not stopping the fuel. You know, I, I, 
I actually, when I when I was all constantly arguing with people about slowing down to get better fuel economy and that everybody wants to push back and all that, one of the calculators I built would show you how much you saved by slowing down, but then I even added another step to it. I also calculated how many times a year you had to fuel based on your fuel economy. And it was pretty shocking how many times you didn't have to fuel in a year because you got a mile per gallon better. It adds up. I can imagine. Yeah, it adds up. Yeah. <laughs> the only way you can make the case against that is if you figure out your fuel stops that when you're stopping for break that you also it, combine your uh, post-trip involved with your fueling. I, I, even then, the one I've said this forever, I think that the two things I hated about my job when I was on the road was getting fuel and logbooks. So ELDs would have been fine for me because I hated doing my logbook, and any time I can avoid getting fuel, that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear you. So it wasn't... You. It wasn't for efficiency or profitability. It was just convenient. That's exactly right. I was just lazy. I didn't. I hated sitting there waiting for the idiots at the, in the fuel line. Yeah. Well, I have a, I have a question for, uh, for Joel and Alec. If the model identification and the sleeper size, like the VNR, that's the short hood. And the VNL is the uh -huh. longer hood. But uh -huh. the so you got 740 and 760 and 860 and I don't know what else, but does that just tell the size of the sleeper or, or what? Or yeah, for the for the most part. So VNR is is vehicle normal position regional, and that N is and for normal position goes back to the horse and carriage days when you were behind the horse that was in a carriage that was considered the normal position. Um, if you were riding on top of the, the horse, you were in the high position. So you oh, get the, right. the oh, okay. FHs for high position, yes. And so that's where that VN and FH, all that comes from. L is long haul, R is regional. Regional gets the shorter hood. Uh, 610, 630, 670, 420s, that's sleeper size, in the, the VNR. And then you got 760, 730. Uh, 730 is the mid-roof, uh, 760 is the high-roof. Uh, they're both 71-inch sleepers, I think, something like that. Um, so, yeah, no, you're you're spot on with the, with the, the nomenclature. So. so a day cab would be a, a, v, a 300, is that right? Correct, yeah. yes. Yeah. Okay, because next week or the week after, I'm, I'm going to go – see the Volvo. I, I got to start somewhere, so I'm just going to go see the Volvo dealer in Oklahoma City. I'm going to give him your VIN number and say, I want a day cab version of this VIN number with a longer frame, and I'm going to start there and see what he says. I'm not going to go into full details about tire size and all that stuff. I'll just, I got to start somewhere, uh -huh. so maybe he'll sure. tell me I'm an idiot or what, but I, I'm just saying I'm sure. truck or not. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I am sure. Yes. <laughs> so that'd be interesting. Let me know how that works. I'll, I'll be interested to see how that works. Yeah. Out. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'm just gonna do a cold call. I'm just gonna walk in there one day. There you go. And uh, sure. maybe, maybe I'll show them a picture of what I got now, and uh, tell them uh -huh. I'm ready to buy a Volvo. And uh, but I'll, uh -huh. I'll say, here's a VIN number. Pull up the build on that. But turn it into a uh -huh. day cab truck with a longer frame. Uh -huh. Tell me how much and see it and go from there. So go start gotcha. Somewhere. Nice. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, well. All right. Good. 
So Good that was stuff. interesting what you added to that, Joel. Do you, Kevin? Do you remember back on the old Cab River Freightliner days? The the model number was about as long as a VIN number. It had letters and numbers and all sorts of stuff, and everything meant something. But it was super long. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, yeah. I remember that. Uh, all of these things, you know, all the transmission model numbers and and vehicle all of those numbers and letters mean something same thing with tires it's just trying to learn them all and remember them all that gets confusing but every one of those letters and numbers and all these model numbers they almost always mean something yeah absolutely i learned something too i didn't realize Joel, that you've been around since the horse and buggy day. <laughs> so that was something for me too. Well, 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 that was before the river was on fire. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. There you well, go. I, I, I know that he's got a lot more years than anybody would suspect, but even I was impressed. Well, so. he, he could he could probably tell us why the uh, the union in trucking is referred to as the Teamsters. Uh, yeah. Well, there you go. I, that, I, I, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> they drove a team of horses. That, that's where the, the word originally came from, the Teamsters. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And they still got right. one thing in common. They're still looking at asses all day long. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, you know, that was pretty witty, say, Paul. Unless... You, Unless you're in the lead wagon, the view is the same. <laughs> That's right. That's well, right. All right. Well, I, I wonder if they were that way back in the day with how many horses they put in front of their wagon to see who could get up the hill first. I, and, and bigger horses. We want bigger horses. That's right. I got six horses. You only have four. It, it wasn't that. Oh, to, that wasn't there some correlation there? How we came up with the word horsepower? The, no, no, well, it's it true. Yeah. Horsepower, horsepower is a completely made-up thing. Right. You cannot measure horsepower without doing a mathematical formula. There's nothing you can hook up to an engine just to measure strictly horsepower. It's all about torque and RPM, and then you can derive horsepower from that. But yeah, James Watt is the guy that came up with the term horsepower. He was having problems selling his external combustion steam engine, <laughs> and he came up with horsepower to demonstrate how much work his engine could do compared to a horse. There you go. That's right. There's a history lesson. All right, Paul, we're going to cut you loose. Have a great Christmas. Okay, Merry Christmas. Have Merry fun. Christmas. See ya. Let's go. Now we got a bunch of calls. Let's go to South Dakota. Jamie, hey there. How's it going today? Good. What's on your mind? I got a couple of questions. So, I've got a 23 Mac Anthem. We've talked before. Do you really make okay. 42 pounds of boots going up a hill? Yep. Okay. I, I've got the compounder. I rarely ever make more than 32 pounds. Uh, do you, do you have, well, I don't think anything's wrong. Do you have the dynamic torque turned on, or is it a straight torque engine? can't tell you the answer to that question. Uh, Got to find that out, because if you have dynamic torque turned on, it's only going to give you just the amount of boost you need to get up a hill, because it's going to limit torque I, to only what you need. That's how mine is as well, Joel. Yeah, go ahead. Um, the other thing I've got is, unlike Jake's, when I'm going down a hill, um, mm-hmm. 
as they as you get going down a hill, all of a sudden they'll stop folding. You know, they'll just disengage until I put my foot on the brake. Do you have the right? That's that's eco roll. That's just yep. Trying to do no, that. I, I shut the eco roll off. I shut the I shut the cruise control all the way out. Um, cruise control does not have to be on if that's a parameter setting for eco roll to work with or without cruise. But if you shut it off, um, sounds to me like something isn't getting the message. But uh, oh, you, that's interesting. I, I I've never heard of that happening before. If you have the switch to shut it off, where it continues to eco roll. Yeah, that sounds like a, that sounds like an error. My question would be, why would you want to shut it off? Well, I run out, out west all the time, and when I'm going on a big hill, I, I just want the cruise, the Jake brake to stay on. I, I, I don't okay. like rolling down the hill any miles an hour. I'd rather it just stay on and let me roll at 60. So I, I got you. So, Joe, uh, I'm going to take this to you because I know how it works on a Detroit. Don't you have a feature that's called descent control or whatever you call it because th that keeps you from doing any of that well you can shut the eco roll off you can also set target speeds on the dash where it'll only eco roll to a certain speed and then the the uh engine brake will engage you know one of so the problems you can go plus go ahead yeah i, I was just gonna say it's not one eco it's not a gear it's not kicking it out of gear. It'll stay. It'll stay at eighteen hundred RPM in in ninth gear. It just won't turn the cruise control on. Oh, that's a parameter no, setting then. Yeah, yeah. You got to go in. You can set that cruise control up a hundred different ways into parameters. Yeah. So that's just simply a parameter setting to set it up the way that you want it. Right. So my out of curiosity when I'm. When I'm going down a hill, if I pull my Jake into the first position and hit set on my cruise control, it will hold it right at that speed all the way down the hill. And then when you flip it off, that becomes your resume speed. We can we can so, we can do that, or we can just set it for a specific window. All right. So here here's because when I'm on the bigger hills, I do it that way. I have the window and that. Here's part of the problem. Sure. This is a lot like what we face with computers and software and we have for a long time now um, you take a program and one of the best examples of this like an Excel spreadsheet you could get 10 PhDs in the room that have all studied Excel spreadsheets for 20 years and they're still probably only using 30% of the power in that program there's so uh, you're 100% right there's so many variables and variations and tools that it, one person can't possibly know them all and now our trucks are getting that complicated that there are so many different parameters and ways to set this up you get five people in the room they all have the same truck and everybody goes oh no mine doesn't do that when I'm on cruise well, I know but that's because you have this box checked and you have this parameter turned on and I don't but I have this it's really complicated these days. It, it is, and what 
complicates it even further is when we bring the European parameter set over to the United States, and a lot of the things don't apply because we have different hardware and different traffic conditions. Right. But all those parameters are still hidden in the parameter set, yeah. and you have to try to clean all that up. <laughs> it's, a, it, it's a nightmare, and I understand the frustration that customers have over that. Like this, this gentleman's yeah. driving a truck around that he doesn't like how the cruise is working. Probably it, nobody at the dealership knows exactly, exactly what parameter to go to. Right. Know that. But right. it, it could absolutely be fixed with the right parameter. If I don't you know have it. the Mac <laughs> stuff right off the top of my head, um, but uh, we could probably get them to the right place. I can ask around and see what I need to get for that. Yeah, you know, an example on the cruise issue, I just dealt with this all the way across the country. If I leave my cruise on and my Jake's on, on the coach, and you go downhill, there is a certain speed will it will roll out on the cruise, and then the Jake's will come on. And if it's a fairly right. gradual hill, that works okay. But if it's a steeper hill, and I try to do that, the cruise allows it to run out way too fast before the jakes kick in, and then the jakes aren't effective enough to get me slowed down enough, and now I'm braking. So on a steeper hill, yeah. at the top, I will turn the cruise off and just manage the jake coming down the hill. Mm -hmm. And on a more gradual, I'll just let the cruise do both. Yes. Well, the descent control, to me, is awesome, and I'm sure yours does the same thing. It'll hold you right to the mile an hour. I remember I went out, this one fleet was complaining they couldn't hold back on the hill, but they weren't using it right. They were trying to use everything manually. and Right, right. Mine just doesn't... In their mind, taking right. control of it, but they did not know how to control it. And it was a 10-mile-an-hour downgrade. I said descent control with a 53,000-pound coil on their deck, and it held it right to the mile an hour all the way down that hill. Yeah, wait, correct. Wait. We, we, have, we call it mountain mode on our side, but that's exactly right. That's what it'll do. Yeah, and when you know how to set it up for the way you like to drive, it's awesome. But like you said, you pull into the dealer, and they'll just give you the deer in the headlights look. They don't know how to set half this uh -huh. stuff. And it's so easy to use. It, it, once it's set up, right. Yeah, it's really easy to use. Yeah, All right, we've, we've got yeah. to get to some calls. Let's go to Texas. Danny, welcome. Yeah, I'm fixing to cross the line, so you're you're right on schedule. Good. Um, all right, I know you want to end the day here. Um, you seen where I picked up? I bought my own reefer trailer for working with uh, TJ. Okay. And it's got the skirts, super singles, and... I'm going to get those uh, fly swatter mud flaps and trim them down so they're not wider than the tire. But anything else I can do to this trailer to, uh, I mean, I know I know there's a trailer tail, which I don't think anybody, they even make them. Smartway's got those pieces that go on the side, kind of wrap around like a hard plastic, the smart truck. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what else uh, I can do on this trailer to make it any more uh, efficient. So I was curious about that. And then I had a question uh, what for Joel on the... Uh, go ahead. What's, what do we got on the trailer? Yeah, so uh, you said that's a reefer, right? Yep, 2015 utility. Okay, so I had a utility as well. Uh, um, so one of the things... I guess it, is, it depends on how big the trailer gap is. I know you have to have a certain amount you know, with the reefer, but the closer you can snug that reefer up, 
to the back of the trailer, uh, back of the cab, the better. Uh, right. What both Henry and I did when we had longer wheelbase trucks, um, you know, Henry was smart enough that he put on a full size. Now these are on our dry vans. We both had utilities. At the, well, so, uh, he still does. Uh, I don't, but um, he got the uh, nose cone, the full height nose cone that sometimes uh, the only other place I've seen him is on the uh, golf cart type trailers. Uh, the yeah, name escapes me. Yeah. Uh, club car. Club car. So we used those. Um, Henry was smart enough to start with it, and then uh, he uh, handed it down to me, and I put it on my trailer to fill in that gap. Now, obviously, with a reefer on the front, uh, that's not going to work for you, but there are uh, nose cone makes, uh, I call them wings, but sideburns and, and whatnot that help you on your uh, on the nose on the sides of the reefer to make that thing a little bit more aerodynamic to uh, compensate for too long of a wheelbase, for lack of a better term. So you might look into nose cone, all one word, the sideburns, and there's also an eyebrow. Uh, that would help the, the trailer gap aerodynamic, uh, frankly, considerably. Uh, if, you're, if your trailer gap is, is too big, and I'd be willing to bet it, on a not. And if it's it not, it's 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 an old it's a 770. It's an old fleet truck, so the wheelbase <laughs> is pretty short. So so it, it okay. Uh, not not gonna make not, it. Well, it's it it, it, it it to clarify, it's not necessarily the wheelbase per se. It's the trailer gap. It's the space between the back of the cab and the front of the trailer. That's the critical dimension. Correct. The the universal number I used to always hear on that from the people at Nose Cone, where you want to be from the end of your cab extender, this isn't on the back of your cab, to the nose of your trailer, you want to be under 18 inches. Correct. Okay. That's, yeah. that's like the, the universal number. Does that mean that's right for every application? But that gets you right in the neighborhood. You know, one of the things I've always wondered about that, I, I, I get that they put a number on it and it helps, but zero be the best? Well, yeah, but you can't <laughs> no. turn. Well, here's the, here's the thing with this. With a reefer, uh, you're not really going to have any room to put any nose treatment on the trailer, period. Right. Um, there's not a lot of room for that anyway. And that reefer unit kind of fills the gap in. It acts as a vortex breaker, and it breaks the, the vortices that get in between sure the truck and the trailer. So, so the reefer works fine that way. Um, with his shorter wheelbase fleet spec, he's going to be able to, as long as he doesn't have a limiting 12,000 or 12.5 front axle, he should be able to pull it up and, and close the gap. You've got the belly fairing, the, the little uh, winglets on the back. I guess they do help to some degree. I'm not a huge fan of them, but um, mm -hmm. I, I, guess, there, I guess they do help. There's nothing, on I, the, there's nothing on the tail of the trailer. Booster tail making a... Booster tail's what, making a three-hour tail. You're familiar with that, Alex. Yeah. yeah. So, he, but he's got the uh, uh, smart truck uh, side wings on the back of the trailer, which is the same as the rocket tail in concept. So he's got the treatment there. If I if I heard that correct. I, I was talking about booster tail, Alex. Booster tail from Alex. Yeah. From, uh, okay. Lee. From Lee, the the booster tail would be a huge improvement, I think. Um, through any of those other devices, um, and you might reach out to uh, to Boost Tail directly. They're in uh, 
uh, Olympia, Washington. But um, that, I think, would probably be your, your best help. Uh, you've done everything else. Um, well, now, the, the last first, thing that I, I, could, I could think of just real quick here, and then you guys can go back to the aerodynamic stuff. Personally, if that were my trailer, the first thing that that's going to get, it's going to get the it's going to get the Dr. Preload done to it. Um, trailers absolutely. I, I, yeah. Historically, yeah, yeah. have been horrible for wheel bearing adjustment. They do not care about fuel efficiency. All they care about is safety, and they err on the side of caution when they are assembling those wheel ends at the factory, and they tend to be too damn tight. So. Um, I'll let these guys talk about the arrow since that's their wheelhouse. I'm more of a mechanical drag guy, but that's the one thing that I would do to it. If you have not, I would have it doctor preloaded. Joel, mm-hmm. a question here on, I've been trying to, I know you're busy on uh, Facebook and whatnot. 2018-19, um, like an 860 or whatever the, uh-huh. how, how far back would you go on a, uh, a truck like that looking for nine, eight and a half, nine plus? Um, so here's the thing. Um, having had everything from the D12s on up, um, even the crappy years, we have learned how to make run, uh, you know, the, the 12s, 13s, 14s, where things really start to get good fuel efficiency-wise, if you're looking at a VGT, is where they went to common rail. That happened in 2018. Um, the non-common rail engines can run very well. You just have to understand you've got to do that that little check valve, the hold pressure in the galley, and and there's a few things, few extra steps you have to do to keep them running the way they should. But really, it's it, right in that mid 2018 where common rail and the wave piston made its debut was where things really started to take off and get good. Because I see a lot of 18s and 19s for sale with the with the I shift, but a lot of them have 264 gears. Which well, VGTs, I don't know if that was. VGTs will have 264s. It's what they call the XZ package. It's 264 overdrive. Today we don't really consider it downsped. When it came out in 2013 or 14, it was the most downsped powertrain on the market at the time. They will do okay um, with the VGT and the 264s. You know, you're not going to be, it's not a 10-mile-a-gallon truck, and you're going to work your ass off to get nine. It is capable of nine, but you're going to work at it. It's just not a 10-mile-a-gallon truck. So the TC, the Gen 1 TC, came out 2018, midway through the year, I believe, 2019, little harder to find, but uh, worth the effort to track one down. And then, of course, the new Gen 2s have just been absolutely fantastic. And I think that switchover was in 2020 when they went to the Gen 2. All right. It'll be next spring before I'm looking for something like that, so maybe something will pop up. But uh, if I see anything... If I see anything, I'll uh, I'll throw them on my uh, in my social media feeds. You know, I, I've had a lot of people asking me, and uh, I, I I don't think they're gonna they're they're watching what I'm doing, and they're thinking if I buy a VGT, it's gonna be just about the same. It will not be. I will tell you that right now. It's not gonna be anywhere in the neighborhood. You need to do the put forth the effort and find a TC. 
I'll check with you before I pull the pull the okay, cord anyway. Good. So, hey, hey everybody, Danny, have a good uh, holiday. What? what yeah, other, go ahead. What? Yep. Just one other thing on the trailer is not a big deal, but you don't want to give up that 08 percent gain by having wheel covers on there. I'm actually, I'm looking for the wheel covers and the uh, the flow below uh, okay. for the truck and. Uh, you but can, see, I'm a cheap bastard. I'm looking for used. Well, and you can put the the flow below wheel covers on the trailer too. Yeah, I'm the. I'm talking with a guy now that's got a set. I got to try to meet up with him. But yeah, I was gonna do uh, do that stuff too. Good. All right. And, and as a side note, Kevin, I would have the wheel covers even if they had no fuel mileage gain, just for the simple reduction in road spray that gives you much better visibility when you're in the rain. Uh, which seems to be a, a, a benefit of a lot of aerodynamics. We, we do get better visibility with, uh, with a lot of the aerodynamics. Let's, um, let's go to Pennsylvania. Darren, welcome. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for taking my call. Hey, I'm just this young kid that's back here doing the stupid stuff of finding one carrier and doing all dedicated freight, hauling this cheap freight for five bucks a mile. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't call in very often, but I actually do have a serious question on that. But something sure. just came up on one of the last calls that I had to think about um, this idea of like, why does every like everyone thinks about the cat that has like the big engine that has all this power? So that's I started out with the twin turbo cat in a 2005 uh, Freightliner Classic back in 2014, and I got it all um, tuned up, and it ran really well. But in 2019, then I bought the truck I have now. It's a 13 Coronado glider kit with a Detroit 12.7 liter in it, and I thought, you know. That's just a little engine, you know. That's what I grew up with. No, no one wanted Detroit the 12.7 liter because it was little. But anyway, I had it. It's not Pittsburgh Power's tune, but I had it out there on their dyno. And uh, this thing is cranking 618 horsepower to the ground, and I'm pushing 2,034 foot-pounds of torque out of a 12.7 liter. So I don't think it's a little engine. <laughs> it runs pretty good. And the other so. the other thing we have to remember is that really, if we're comparing that to what everybody else claims as horsepower, it's more like 700. Nobody really talks about wheel horsepower. We always talk about, you know, yep. crank horsepower. But dyno stuff yep. is, is to the ground. So that's more like a 700 horsepower engine. And, and you can get more out of them if you want. That's always been my point that, I, you know, why do we look at a C13 and think it's a small engine? It's really not. Yep. It, it, so right. it, now here's the other thing I will tell you. When people talk about they, they love the cat and the way the cat pulls and all the power and all that, they're not referring to an A-cert. I thought the A-certs were awful. Yeah. The, the throttle yeah. response is horrible unless you tune them. And once you tune them, they can yeah. start to run like an older cat. But the A-certs, I, I think... The factory A-certs are just awful to drive. Yeah, it was. When I bought it, it was that way. Then I had it tuned by the same guy who did this one. And he had it, he had it running really well. It was, it was really good. But yeah, mine I, runs I good now. It was good back then. My, mine, yeah. mine runs good yeah, with the I, tune, but without a tune, it was awful. The, the throttle feels like yeah. a marshmallow. There's no throttle response at all on the stock A-certs. Oh. I think they were horrible. Yeah. And I don't really pay, like, so I run, I have this set up with 264s and run in direct. I, I'm home every night. I do, like, about, my my nice normal run is 215 miles one way. <laughs> so I run 50, I run 57, and um, 
so down, I run about 1,300 RPMs, and so right there, I'm at like 530 horsepower, but I still got my 2,030 foot-pounds of torque, so I'm not running. In order to get that 620, I got to be the whole way up at like 1,800 and some, and right. I, of course, I never run that, so. But it, it runs really well, and my current the summertime 90-day average was 9.07, and then I'm right now I'm at 8.46 here in the wintertime, but still really good for what yeah. I do. So, um, so my question that I have, well, I have several then, but the truck that I have right now, I'm running, right now I have the 540 full synthetic oil in here, and I heard Matt say that he runs 1030 in his cat like the old cat engine. I'm just curious, like, would I hurt anything by trying that in this or would I gain anything or would I hurt any? Well, the, the, the potential gain on a lighter weight oil is better efficiency. Um, we're not dragging through a thicker oil, but the downside is the tolerances on the older engines aren't quite as tight. You're going to burn more, but if, if you're okay with the consumption rate of the oil, there, there's no, there's no real danger. These oils still protect really well. They have great film strength. They're, they're just lighter. You, you may leak a little more. You may burn yeah. a little more. Uh, you should gain a little bit of efficiency. Yeah. So I, I have 71,000 on this oil right now, and I, put, I added 5.5 gallons and 71,000 miles of the 540. So I'm not, I feel like my consumption is actually very low, but I don't know. Yeah, I wasn't sure how much that would change going uh, hold, to hold, 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 1030. How much? Yeah. How much oil? Five and a half gallons. Five and a half gallons. 71,000 miles? Wait. Holy shit, I don't put five ounces in my truck in 71,000 miles. Well, but, yeah, but, but I have a DJ 12 7 liter. Yeah, let, let's go yeah, back to these. Different engines. It doesn't matter. Yeah. No, it does matter. Those engines, no, I don't know. It, I, those I, engines burn yeah, I don't oil. I if that's normal or not. Yeah, it's, yeah. those engines okay. burn oil from brand new. I mean, we always yeah. burn okay. oil. So that, normal. It, that's not even, I mean, okay. that's more than 10,000 miles a gallon. I mean, okay. that's, that's like... Right. I just, just want yeah, to... Yeah, that's normal. Yeah, that's like 12 Make almost... Make sure that was normal for that yeah, engine. Yeah, it's like 12, almost 13,000 miles per gallon. I've seen brand new Series 60s do that. that that's that's wow. nothing wrong okay. with that at all. And listen, I have, yeah. have 770,000 miles on here. Right. So I'm not that's, like... I don't... It's not brand new, but it's not... No, that... Yeah, that hopefully not wore out yet. Sure. Either, not, not even close to oh. worn out. That, that's exactly what we would expect from a good, healthy 12.7 with that many miles on it. It, okay. it gave you top cylinder lubrication. Well, here's the other thing. Yeah. Hey, Honestly, you <laughs> um, if you're doing extended drains with like an OPS and you have some oil consumption, you can almost go forever without changing your oil. I knew a couple trucks that were yeah. using like a gallon every 6,000 miles, but a couple of those trucks had 500,000 miles without an oil change because we were refreshing the oil enough and filtering it that it never needed to be changed. Sure. Yep. Well, this it's yep. the same concept. I had a Cummins in the late 80s, early 90s, and it had some system on there, and I forget the name of it. What? But you had a big oil sentinel. Oil sentinel. Oil that, sentinel. That's right. You had a like a five gallon canister on the back of the cab. You kept that full of oil, and you never changed your oil because the engine routed your oil into the fuel system and burn it. And you were always putting new oil in, so you didn't have to change it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yep. So. Uh 
some point I want to upgrade to a newer truck. I don't know exactly when yet, but got two questions in regards to that. So um, I haul, I pull drop deck trailer and haul pallets. So I'm loaded one way, empty the other. When I'm loaded, I'm anywhere from 13.3 to 13.6 high. Just depends on the thickness of the pallets, and they just keep me up there as close as they can. What I currently have a mid-roof. Is that the best option for what I do, or would I benefit from a high-rise, or what would your recommendations be when looking for another truck? If your high-rise is going to help you when you're loaded and, and, and it's going to hurt you when you're empty. Yep. Yeah, would it be about the same? Yeah. Like, it's like I guess that's, that's all I was asking. So basically, one way or the other, it's going to be about the same. Is that what I'm hearing? Sure. I, yep. I would want to know more about you. you just, I mean, if it's truly a digital load, you know, loaded one way, uh, empty the next, you know, um, you know, uh, do you have any sort of headache rack or anything like that to hang a, uh, some sort of a small nose cone on there to, to help your aerodynamics at all? I do not. No, it's just straight open on the front. Yeah. So I'd, I'd want lift yeah. axles on it if I was building something new on the truck and the trailer, then you could run back on three axles instead I, of five. I do right now, actually. I have, I have uh, my truck is a six by two, and then I have lift axle on both of my trailers, so I come home on three axles. But yeah, All right. if mm -hmm. I bought another one, I would either plan to switch it or else buy one with it that way. So yeah, I would I definitely like the way that that is. Um, and I, you you want to buy it w w with it now because what happens with the reduced stopping distances and everything, it all ties into the brake system and how it reacts. It's just not a matter of just switching it anymore. Gotcha. That's good, good information. I was going to ask you too, Henry, what for gear ratio, like, so, well, I know Joel and everybody can wear into this, but I, I really like the Cascadias for some reason. I just like how they look and stuff. So I was curious, like, so I run 57. Um, I do, like, local stuff, every anywhere from 100 to 215 miles one way. Like, what what would you, how would you, look, what perspective should I look for in that? Like, would you set it up? Yeah, what ratio? That yeah. If I'm building a 6x2 doing what you're doing, I'm putting a 261 in it with a .78 overdrive, but I'm going to run 60, not 57. Because at 57, you're too close to a shift point. Okay. 261. Hey, Joel, how, how, low, how, how low do you run the other day? So, well, the Volvo's different than, than the Freightliner. We're right. a little more comfortable lower. Right now, I'm, I have a 5,000-pound load on, so it's going to be very similar to running empty. Um, I'm in 14th gear with the same ratio overdrive with a 216 at 55 mile an hour, which it's fine with. It's 800 RPM. Yeah, I don't go that far. And then what do you, so, if you were, say you had a load on Joel at, you know, 65, gross in 65 or 70, Running 55, 57. What what do you what gear do you run in then with that ratio? On, on on flat ground, I'm in overdrive at 800 RPM, and it's just fine. Now, okay. if it's pulling a hill, then I'll I'll drop it back into to direct, and it'll come up to like around uh, just about a thousand. We're we're setting you know 1050 okay. or something like that, and that's where I'll climb a hill. But uh, yeah, I wanna I wanna the Volvo. You wanna run sub a thousand and. And you know, keep keep it down there to get the to get the fuel mileage out of it. Okay. So then back to Henry with the two sixty one and your overdrive, what RPMs are you at at sixty? With what would what would the RPMs be looking like at sixty? 
the way you recommended for the Detroit. Uh, hang on one second. Let me get you an exact number because I don't run that speed. Okay. It would be right about, well, of course, it goes into E-Coast then. <laughs> Just a little under 1,100. Okay. Okay. Good enough. That gives me some ideas to look for anyway. I don't know how soon I'm going to do it because this thing runs pretty efficient, but I, I'm not, I, I don't want to redo this one. I just want to go newer when I, when it's time to upgrade. So keeping my options open. So, looking for advice. All right. So there you one, go. one thing for you to keep in mind when you're looking at these newer trucks, you're going to see what you're going to consider very low horsepower ratings because you're used to these engines that are oh, yeah. 700 horsepower. But when you look at the actual horsepower at a given RPM, especially at the lower RPM, there's a good chance that the lower horsepower engine is going to actually be making as much or more horsepower when you drop down under 1,100 RPM. Your 700 horsepower engine, like you had said, is making it at 1,800. Uh, you're making 500 at, what did you say, 1,300 RPM? Yeah, I should see how low the sheet goes here in my sheet that shows RPMs. The lowest, they cut me out at 1,250 RPMs, and I was at 504 horsepower there on the dyno. Right. So right where you, you need to know where the horsepower is at is where traditionally we never even bothered looking at it because we never ran down there. And and this yeah. is this is where it becomes problematic. So at that 1250, you are only 40 more horsepower than what my iTorque is putting out because um, I put out 465 horsepower, even though it's a 455 right at that number. Um, I would suspect as you drop under that, that my truck will actually be making more horsepower than your, your 700 horsepower truck. And, and so you yeah. just need to keep that in mind. Same thing's going to happen on the Detroit side. And the same thing will be true probably of any down sped engine you look at. And of course that's what uh -huh. down speeding means higher horsepower at very low RPM. So, just yeah. keep that in mind. Peak horsepower doesn't mean jack squat when it comes to real-world efficiency and using your truck as a tool. Will it give you bragging rights going up a hill? Yep. And if that's what's important to you, stay with what you got. But if you're looking to be efficient and make money, investigate the whole downsped concept and understand it before you pull yeah. the trigger. Uh Absolutely. I had somebody that I met online that started contacting me about putting together a truck, and he had, you know, the big old Pete with a jacked-up cat, 700 and some horsepower and all that, and he kept talking to me about wanting to put the specs together on a Cascadia, and we're back and forth and back and forth, and, and he was like, I, I'm like, are you wanting to stick your toe in this, or are you wanting to jump all in? Well, then he decided to jump all in, and he went with the 400-1750, which had more power than a lot of engines down to the low RPM, and he was perfectly pleased. But he knew what he was getting into, and he knew it wasn't going to accelerate like when he had 700 horsepower and stuff like that. But, you know, he carried more money to the bank at the end of the week. There you go. All right. We're a gonna, lot more money. We're going to go to Wyoming. Chris, welcome. Hey. Hi, fellas. I enjoy the show on Fridays. I just had a couple questions. A little bit about my operation. I've got a DD-16 and a Western Stars, the 5700, the aerodynamic version. But my question is, the trailer I have is an ex-Maverick. It's a flatbed. I, I pull flatbed. I can't get it any closer to the cab because some of the stuff I do is over length, so I need the room in the front. But anyway, uh, 
the toolboxes on this trailer are in the middle of the trailer. And I wondered, you all were talking one day about that, spread axles and the dirty air and everything. Would it be any advantage to move them back there between the axles? Or does it even matter? Well, well yeah. from Ohio to, yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yes, from an arrow standpoint, you also want to change the mud flaps, how they mount all the way to the top of the trailer, which makes them into four parachutes. But the the other loss on a spread is there's just more drag all the time because the axles are so far apart, and never is the road perfectly straight, so you're always dragging a tire harder than a closed tandem. Right. Well, and another thing I was going to talk to you about, Henry, the this DD-16, I get the same. I go from Ohio to Washington and Oregon. That's what I do. And with the wind and the mountains and everything else, I'm getting the same fuel mileage out of this DD-16 that I did out of my DD-15. But it made my life a lot easier because at the end of the day, so, I don't feel like I was pushing the truck. <laughs> so be, be, be very careful about that comparison. We talk about this all the time. You're assuming everything else uh-huh. is the same. And you're, well, yeah, you're, that's... Yeah. It, well, that's a... Don't... don't poo-poo that that's a big big deal and it gets a lot of people screwed up it's it's i I can almost go back and make the analogy it's why we always thought the cat was just a great engine because it had so much horsepower and that sticks in our mind that oh it's a long stroke and it's a it has all the pop yeah but those two didn't have anything necessarily to do with each other that was just a coincidence a coincidence that your DD-16, when you say it gets the same, n- n- no, it, it really doesn't. The overall average might be close, but there could be 37 other reasons. So don't oh, yeah. think one that of, that... One of the big differences is the DD-15 was a manual 10-speed, and this is the DT-12 automatic. I'm sure it's doing a way better job at shifting than I ever did. It, it, that's that, part of it. That's just gear one ratios, one yep, possibility. And, 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 it, it, tires, gear ratios that we could go parameters and how they're set. We could go on and on and on. But I, I will tell you, in my experience, that 16 is not nearly as efficient as the 15. Everything else being no. equal. No, it's not. No, I I can't disagree with you, but I will say this: it's a lot more fun to drive. Now I don't care. Yeah, to, uh, I'm with you there. Use all of it. <laughs> um, but I just wondered about those toolboxes because I know Maverick. You know they're obviously pretty concerned about aerodynamics. So I thought, well, maybe it wouldn't make any difference at all, and it won't really cost me any money other than some hardware to change it. But it'll be time and work. And if it's not going to make any difference, I didn't want to fool with it. But. My thought was, if it was an advantage, they would have already put them back there. I would think. Well, well, don't assume that either. Don't, don't yeah, assume. The real trick would be <laughs> yeah. to be to, to to be and not do it like Prime did it because they didn't quite mount them right, but to skirt your trailer because the bottom of a flatbed is actually exactly. worse than the drive-in. Well, and, and right. let, yeah, that's just, let's talk about skirts. All these companies that think they're being efficient putting on skirts, we talked about this last week. If they're flapping going down the road, they're probably hurting fuel and mileage more than they're helping. Well, and you don't <laughs> just last week, Kevin, the, the wind in Wyoming putting skirts on a trailer worries me because you see them all over the ditch out here. You know what the wind can do out here, and I worry well, about putting skirts on it, on the trailer and keeping them all in there. It's okay. why I. It's why right, I. Let, let, I struggle. Let me stop you on that one. I struggle more with uh-huh. the with the coach in heavy cross winds or or slanted winds than I ever did with a tractor trailer, because even though my surface area is smaller overall, there's no gaps anywhere. 
So a, a tractor trailer at least has a gap between the tractor and trailer. You get a little bit of a break. Without skirts, they've got yeah. a much bigger gap on the bottom. My coach is really low to the ground. That it was the worst vehicle I have ever driven in wind. That was the worst experience I've ever had with wind driving anything. And I had to get well, it I off the road. It was that bad. I can only imagine what that was like. Yeah, yeah. it was bad. Well, I had to be Plus, you have a cushy suspension, so, Kevin. You've got another good point. That's exactly right. Well, and you've also got waste, potentially. So the irony is that a skirted trailer, you know, if you look at the uh, uh, profile of a highway, generally for drainage, the road, you know, go off to the side and it goes down. So if you look at a crosswinds, like if you're going north on 25 at uh, whatever that road is at mile marker 165, Bordeaux Road. So the, the air actually gets lifted as it's approaching the road surface, and a skirted trailer does not allow the air to get underneath the trailer to lift it off the ground and roll it over. And and so, no, I agree when you come that. to these, I was just more concerned about keeping so, the skirts yeah. on the trailer. I see them get tore up all the time. Well, uh, it, high quality it, skirts, it, they, they're fine. Exactly. Turn it over. I agree. It would be. It would actually be an advantage. Because you can't get, like you said, you can't get the air under it, so that would help. Correct. With the actual tractor trailer turning over. Gen- generally, that is the case uh, because of the whole drainage idea. Now, if you're if it's perfectly flat, then then all you've done is increase the surface area, as as Kevin was describing. But uh, you know, all things being equal, uh, I rather take you take know. it uh, get a skirted. It's going to help me. You know, we talked about this. You know, gearing a truck for going up the hills, you know, that one half of a percent of the time. And you're in yeah. the same boat with a skirt. You if know, you're I in wasn't... that situation where the gusting, then park the truck. Yeah, I wasn't. Um, I usually I, do. I wasn't and, concerned. And when you put on skirts, you want them straight, not angled in, because then you're plowing there. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I, I was not yep. concerned with being blown over. Um, the coach is actually pretty stable as far as rollover. Now, it feels like it's going to roll because of that soft suspension, but a lot of my weight is really down low. All my tanks, all the liquid tanks are low. The engine is fairly low. The generator, big heavy generator up front is mounted nice and low. I don't worry about flipping over. What was happening for me was the trucks were down to going so slow up the hill because everybody was going slow overall. So they were really struggling to get up the hills. Mm -hmm. I've got plenty of horsepower and not a whole lot of weight. So the hill wasn't a problem for me. The problem was trying to pass another truck. I would get blown three quarters of the way out of my lane when a gust would hit. And and it was to the point where I'm trying to pass a truck. I'm either going to hit the truck or I'm going to hit the guardrail, one of the two, because I just couldn't keep it in my lane. So one, one real quick observation on the whole discussion, and I'll, I'll just avoid the whole arrow part of it, but um, it's interesting that you came out of a DD-15 with a 10-speed manual, went to a DD-16 with a 12-speed automated manual transmission, and you apply the credit for the fun to drive to the 16-liter when in actuality, <laughs> that transmission yeah. took all the work away from you and probably would have been just as happy with the 15 uh, with the DD-DT-12 in your application. So. 
a lot of times we confuse this, and this is what happens in the industry and why we have such a reverence for the big cat. When we had manual transmissions, you had a smaller engine. You as the driver worked harder. There is no hey. question about that oh, because Joe. we we geared trucks to run in the big hole and displacement and stroke at that time did have somewhat of an advantage on keeping you in the big hole and not having yeah. to work as hard. Joel, so that mentality well, listen, just carries over to that, today's engines and it's just it's not a good fit. Joel, would you ever? And inherently, there's less parasitic loss in the DT12 automated manual versus yeah, right. the 10-speed Road Ranger because there's less parasitic drag within the transmission itself. Correct. So what we're really talking about is there are so many variables and and there's a lot of nuance. And unfortunately, in the industry, we miss all the variables and the nuance. And we credit things where they shouldn't be credited. Well, Kevin, you know, I, I don't know if we miss it or because here's some of the things that happen. Look, guys take pride in how well they can shift their 13 or 18 speed. You know, that's a that's a badge honor type thing for them. And even you put them into a truck with an I-Shift or DT12, which is clearly a better way to do it, a better transmission, they'll still, no, no, I ain't right. doing it. You I know, know what I mean? And, I and this, this stuff persists in the industry. And this is just plain stupidity. It just is. <laughs> I mean, I hate I, to say it, well, but it, it's so, just plain stupidity. And so, you know, and so what happens is a situation like this, He's relating it all to the 16-liter engine when the reality that, of the situation probably had nothing to do with the 16-liter engine. That was my point, that that he, he, he believes he that made, the 16-liter got the same yeah. fuel economy as the 15, but it was more fun to drive. And, and it, that's a faulty assumption. And, and the reality is I've never, I've never messed a gear with my DT12. I'm sure you haven't with your iShift either, have you, Joel? Have you ever messed a gear? You know, what time you know here's, here's, why, here's why we are the outliers in this industry. Joel, you just talked about it. The, these things that are a badge of honor, big horsepower, 18 speed, uh, all those things that kind of the badge of honor stuff, for the most part, the the four of us really only have one measurement that we really focus on a lot, and it's not what everybody else focuses on. Our measurement is, is bottom line profitability. That's the only badge of honor I really care about. Well, what was the old combination they used to talk about? A four by four with a brownie or something like that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 no, yeah, I hear you. Yeah. All right, we're yeah. going to grab another call. Let's uh, let's go to Illinois. David, welcome. Thank you for taking my call. This message or this question is for uh, Alex and uh, Joel. I got my name is David. I've been the one conversing with you guys about the uh, the two forty sevens and all that stuff. Joel, I've talked to you. Actually, called you at your house. Apparently, uh-huh. um, <laughs> I'm still not getting the fuel that I thought I was going to get. I've dumped a lot of money in this truck. I bought it really cheap, so it's one of those deals. I bought it, it was like six hundred nine thousand miles on it. I paid $20,000 for the truck. Guy wanted out. He had cancer. He wanted out before he passed. So mm-hmm. I stuck a lot of money on the top end, top and the motor, put the money on the bottom end because it was uh, uh, it bearing wearing uh, wear on it that uh, Kevin had told me about on my oil sample. So I did that, <laughs> put uh, 308 on it based off of what Bobo said because it had 342s, got 13-speed uh-huh. double overdrive. Mm. Then um, 
I found out that was a big mistake, so I went and bought new one of uh, the 247s, but I bought those used and put them in, mm-hmm. and I still cannot get the scene above the sixes. So, now, empty, uh, empty, I can do it. You know, I'm doing nine, right? We could not find anything wrong. Everything was perfect uh, until we put Dr. Preload on, and that really? made a huge difference. We had four wheel positions that were significantly too tight, and as soon as we Dr. Preloaded it, it freed things up, and it made a hell of a difference. I'm not saying that's your problem, but it is potentially your problem. And when you've gone through everything else and you can't find the issue, uh, we just learned to doctor preload everything right out of the gate and eliminate, you know, a a lot of bullshit screwing around trying to track down a problem that's very hard to identify. So something to think about. Well, I had the guy down at Dexter put that air dog on uh, this next month, Mm -hmm. and then I I don't have behind the cab fairings, but I'm gonna have I bought some. They're sitting down at the shop. I'm gonna have those put okay. on, um, and put the air tabs on too. I thought that might would help a little bit, but um, you know I'm kind of trying to find things to do, but it's the uh, so no I, I so I, Dave I, I, so, I, I got a question though Dave and Dave, good morning. Um, so one of the things. Uh, you know, I hate to say it, I know you're on top of stuff, but I'm going to say it anyway, just in case for anybody else, is, you know, going through the obvious, like checking the sensors, um, you know, making sure that, you know, crank position sensor is right, absolutely making sure you have no charge air system. Because I I think when you said you were, I, if I remember this right, is that you said that, uh, you know, going with to the 2.47s, uh, in your economy, your fuel economy hasn't improved, and that's just oxymoronic. So it's making me think that you have a tr- charge air leak because at higher RPMs you, you're getting the same, and it, it's not squaring. It's counterintuitive. So it tells me, or it certainly suggests that there might be something mechanical that we're just not seeing. Well, now uh, I've had this. Uh, I can go. Isn't a 247 a little bit tall with a .73 overdrive transmission? Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. It's borderline. Um, I mean, depending on how fast you're running, and it, it, it's going to take a lot of skill to drive that truck, and you're going to have to know when to use those gears. Now, as as is commonly suggested, just put it in direct drive and run it. Doesn't work well with with Volvo power because we have the heavy crank and the heavy connecting rods and running indirect with a 247 70 mile an hour, you're not going to get better fuel mileage. It is not going to happen because you have no, all that. He doesn't run fast in the engine. And you're down to 60, right, Dave? Yeah, that's what I'm running right this moment. And I'm, I'm in uh, yeah. Yeah. the uh, low range, or the lowest part. I'm not in direct. I'm the next one gear. That's going to be 12th gear. But uh, you know, I'm averaging. There's a lot of parasitic loss in 12. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't go to 13. There's, I mean, I'm running right. 25 just doing so, doing 13th gear. Try yeah. yeah, kind of that problem. Speed. Problem with the 13 speed manual is that it is not designed to be run down sped. The steps between the gears are not correct. It's not mechanically correct. It holds a lot of oil. So you're, you're going to struggle a little bit till you find the exact sweet spot on, on the gearings. You may be running indirect at 57 instead of uh, one overdrive. It's, it's, you know what I mean? 
you may have to play with that a little bit to find it. Um, you How should certainly be doing better than what you're doing. How low uh, with a Volvo, you go, go right down, right down to 800 low. RPM. You can go right down to 800 RPM. You, you can. Okay. Um, now, if it protests and you get vibration and it's, it's, it's bucking at you and it's not liking it, that's an indication that we have something else wrong somewhere. Um, but it, it should, it's not going to mechanically hurt that engine to take it down to, to 800 RPM. It's, uh, and that's loaded too. Well, depending on your horsepower demand. Now, remember, at 800 horse, uh, 800 RPM, you you don't have a lot of horsepower down there. So, if you're on perfectly flat ground to move 80,000 pounds, 65 mile an hour requires about 280 horsepower. That's what I have in my truck, so I can do that. Yours is probably not making 280 horsepower, so at that RPM, so you're not going to be able to do that. Okay, so the uh, now Pittsburgh Power is sending me back. I've got two ECMs for this thing. I got the 455 that I bought, had them programmed for it, and then I got, I had a four set. Uh, it was four and a quarter. I had Pittsburgh Power or uh, Volvo shoot up to 475, and that wasn't good enough. So I went to Pittsburgh Power, and he bumped it up to 500 and something. <laughs> okay, uh, all right. So let me so, let me break something down here for you. So you're not disappointed in the future. On a Volvo power curve and with Volvo programming, now I have no idea what Pittsburgh Power's done. You would have to ask them. But if I take a 405, a 425, a 455, a 500, that extra horsepower all occurs at higher RPM. The front of the power curve is exactly the same on all of those ratings. So if you're running mm-hmm. slow at low RPM, bumping the horsepower does you absolutely no good. Oh, I, well, see, I called you that one day, and you said something about if it was in the uh, budget to run it up to get one that has uh, have it set up to, to 500 when I was doing this. So if you are running gears back and you're running at higher RPM, I guess maybe I wasn't clear that you're running that slow at that low RPM. The only way that you gain more horsepower is to run it up at higher RPM. So if you're at that low RPM, all of those settings will work because they're all going to give you the identical horsepower on the front side of the power curve. When you drop a gear to climb a hill, that's where the 455 or the 500 would come into play, up around 1,300, 1,400 RPM. You're down around, what, right now, 1,000, 1,100? I'm at, uh, well, 1,048. Well, I'm kind of going okay. downhill now, so it's 1,066. But I'm, no, I'm basing so, off of my, on Kevin's gauge. I wish my boost, sure. I wish now, we could find a way to, to do this now, boost here, on this thing. Yeah, here's the other thing. that That's provided that each engine has the same torque. Now, if you have an 1850 torque and you had a 1750, now you did gain horsepower on the front of the curve. So... Volvo would offer all those engines in the same torque or like a 1750 or an 1850. If you go to the 1850 torque, now you did gain some horsepower at low RPM. That's probably what we were talking about on the 500 because that probably is an 1850. So on the 455, it was 1750 on torque? It can be either or. You'll have to check to see. That can be a okay. 1750 or an 1850. Same thing with the, all, all of those can be either either setting. The the 405, the 425, that will be 1750. It will not be 1850. 
but uh, you'll have to double check on the torque. Yes. Well, I've got some some drag on the side because I got the uh, Thermal King APU on here. I put on, and I had to take off skirt off to make it work, and uh, so it's, it's not really pretty on it. But I thought, well, it'll save me some money on idling and and emissions sure. issues. So. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to just find. I would just if I could get it to eight miles a gallon or seven point seven five, I'd be happy. You know, but well, I you just do, can't seem to get you there. do, you do understand this time of the year is the absolute worst time of the year to be talking about fuel efficiency. Cold air yeah. is very dense; yeah. it requires more horsepower to push through. You've got some challenges with the manual transmission that holds a lot of oil. When that oil gets cold, it's like molasses. So. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's probably very frustrating for you. Uh, December, January, February, March, is, it's going to be frustrating all the way to March. And then once the weather warms up, you're going to be like, oh, my gosh, you know, this thing's, this thing's wonderful. And it's just on the account of, you know, the, the air warms up, it's less dense, the wind doesn't blow as hard, and uh, your, your lube oils are a little bit thinner. So you definitely have some work to do. There's some challenges because of the transmission. All that being said, it should be better than where you're at. We'll just have to keep working through. You know, when you buy an old truck, there's a lot of unseen things that you have to work through and, and figure out. Right. I'm running a 1030 semi-synthetic on this thing. And I think I've run through two quarts in the last 30,000 miles. I haven't changed it. I got that, that oil filtration system that they sell sure. to. So mm-hmm. um, I'm just trying to find ways I can improve it, but uh, it's yeah, kind of I, I would give, give the Hot Shot Secret people a, a call and see if they have any recommendations for something to use in that transmission. What like I said, I have the same thing. Now, I would go, call Jim Fowler at Michigan MD Alignment and get the Spicer lube for the, for the rear axles. That stuff is proven. Okay. It is excellent. It does a very, very nice job. So, and you might be able to use that in the transmission. I don't know. Talk to Jim about that. Um, he may or may not know. Uh, that stuff is phenomenal. He's in. Uh, he's in. And at the same. Right? Yes. Yes. Okay. And at the same time, you can have, uh, as Joel was suggesting, just you know, spin the tires, see what sort of uh, restrictions he thinks you may be getting. Because if you're not using the, the preload tool, even if somebody does it, quote unquote, the right way, it's. It's an art. It's not a science, and we want science. There you go. So, all right, just check that to make sure that you're not too tight. We are down to our final question, Tom in Iowa. What's on your mind? Uh, I've been in and out of my truck this morning here. Uh, when you guys were talking about trailer aerodynamics and side skirts, what are is there a benefit to the plastic one that bolts on the underside of the trailer that kind of directs the air underneath the axles? What do you guys have thought of on that? Waste of money. Next caller, please. <laughs> <laughs> they don't exist anymore anyway, do they? I don't uh, think the company doesn't. Yeah, the company's not in business. I, I thought now, that somebody bought them though. Now but, yeah. I, I will say I had a different there's, opinion. There's just they did work. They work really well in all of our testing. Um the biggest problem I had with the company was, again, that company was born out of the government programs. The guy that originally started that company came from the EPA, got a bunch of grants to get things going. It, it, I swear every time the government gets their hands on something, it becomes a mess. But I think that company proved a lot of things about trailer aerodynamics. It's a shame they just couldn't stay in business. But I, it, well, it, it's... They- 
the product worked in limited situations. So, you know, side winds, no, and but direct head on, yes. So it, it kind of depends on what the control condition is. If you test it under the EPA SAE J1329 type two testing, it worked fine because there were no side winds by definition of the test. But in real world applications on I-80 with any sort of side wind, for example, uh, it was actually worse than, you know, it was a net negative. So that wasn't our experience. It just depended on the, yeah. Other conditions. Wasn't our yeah. experience. Well, but, Tom, the, the big issue here is that I, I, they don't really exist anymore. Here, here's the other thing we could say. I hear people ask the question all the time, do side skirts help? Well, it depends. If they're built right, they can. If they're built wrong, and we see a lot of those, they're actually making things worse. So it, it, we can't mm-hmm. make blanket statements. Again, it comes down to nuance and detail, and all those things matter. There, there are a ton of skirts on the market that shouldn't even exist. This is uh, exactly why I leave the aerodynamic yeah. stuff up to other people, and I, I concentrate on mechanical drag and, and aerodynamics and are difficult that because yeah. that aero stuff goes over my friggin' head. I'm it's, like you, Kevin. I'll test stuff that people will say there's no way it works, and I see a huge works. gain in other stuff that they'll say this is great and it's it's I, horrible. So I, I, I don't know. I, I just I, it drives me absolutely bonkers on the aero thing. I know Alec and Henry both have a much better handle on this aero stuff than what I'll ever have. It just it confuses me. It irritates me. I just leave it alone for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else, Tom? Uh, uh, Joel, are you? I just bought a, a Volvo 2017 Volvo. Can uh-huh. I? Get your email address, or are you comfortable giving that email address out so I can ask you some questions about Sure. Uh, it, it, it's Joel, J-O-E-L, at Alpha Drivers, with an S, dash TC.com. Okay. All righty. I will see you. So, uh, I, I think we would both agree on this with skirts. Straight with the side of the trailer and the longer the better but don't get too greedy with how far you are from the ground because if they get tore up well then they're not worth anything sure well and they've got to be rigid right so well yes they do the bottom panel can be flexible like with a rubber membrane or whatever but yes the sides absolutely they can't flap in the breeze as you see so many and yes, they need to be uh, flush with the outer skin of the trailer and for maximum benefit as long as possible. So right up to the mud flap on the, on the, uh, as tight as you can and still allow for turning and as long as possible. I mean, the absolute so, best uh, side skirt out there is the Windyne flip and slide, but you know, that's, that is, it's a Cadillac product and it's a Cadillac price. So, and here's that, where, you know, here's that, where, again, I'll, good one. I'll say the government screws this kind of stuff up because when the government steps in yeah. or California or whoever it was, all their criteria is the trailer has to have skirts to be compliant. Well, yeah, some of those skirts are making things worse. Okay, but that, that yes. is so ignorant that that is the only criteria. You have to have skirts or the whole... Well, the well, whole smart way tire criteria makes me insane. Well, yeah, but the, I, the only thing I'll do, I, I agree with you 100% is that's the way it was. 
believe it or not, the government smartened up as everybody would would design so they'd move the trailer all the way forward to 38 and a half feet and they would you know but you know darn well when you go across 80 you got that those trailer tandems set back pretty far to eliminate the leverage so that you don't go kissing the sides you know or in the ditch yeah so the the theory and the practice there was a huge disconnect that's hence they came out with the they call type two testing but it's still wrong because That's that point. assumes that you're driving that, in a vacuum without any wind. That, that, and so they've sanitized the conditions that, you know, anybody could, could frankly make or, a shitty skirt and qualify. Or how about the, the tire criteria for Smartway? You just need to be 10% better, not than the most efficient tire. <laughs> the average. It, that, no, not even the, the average. average. <laughs> no. Here's how they oh. did it. You have to be 10% better than the most popular tire in that size. Oh, that's right. Remember, that's it, right. it was yeah, the yeah. not popular, best-selling. You had to be 10% better than the best-selling tire, which is an ignorant criteria. It has nothing to do with efficiency. Well, on top of that, they didn't go into how long the tread would need to last. It was, that's, it, it, yeah, I know. Don't get me started because it's almost yeah. Christmas time. So, <laughs> one of... One of the things that virtually nobody, I don't want to say nobody at all, but virtually nobody pays attention to. So we talk about aerodynamics. We put aerodynamics on a truck to do what? To reduce the horsepower required to move down the road. Uh, We put low rolling resistance tires on a truck to do what? The same thing. Reduce required horsepower to roll down the road. So we have reductions. We have reductions in horsepower required, but unless we have a gear ratio change, you're not leveraging the full advantage of those things, and you can actually make the pollution problem worse because if you have a traditionally geared truck, you put all those things on there, while your fuel mileage might increase, your, your load or demand on the engine decreases, cools down combustion and makes more particulate. So it's all a bunch of horse shit in the end. It is not helping a damn thing. And you're right. Nobody talks about it. Right. Right. Yeah, but I they know it. I, I, tr- yeah, tr- trust me, they know it at EPA right. that when they when you reduce power demand through rolling resistance and through aerodynamics, but there's no change in the damn uh, gear ratio to drop the piston speed in relation to horsepower demand. Uh, you're creating more particulate by default. Yep. And so, so we th- found an advantage you know for having a hood, Joel. <laughs> there you go. But, <laughs> hey, Joel, I I think you are being overly generous in assessing the intellect at the bureaucratic institutions. Now easy, easy now. <laughs> I, 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 I want to work with these people at some point. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, but, uh, all right. I'm just, I'm calling you like it is. All right. Final word, everybody. Uh, w- wish everybody a Merry <laughs> Christmas. How much longer? Who was that? Hey. that? Merry Christmas. Yeah. Merry, Merry Christmas. Hi, Lisa. Hey, they said hi. So. Are you on video? 
No. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, come back. Did, uh, did, did you hear that moment of panic there? All right. Hey, hey, we're, we're going to try an experiment. Henry, for some reason, your line today has been really staticky, but we don't think it happened until we got the other calls on here. So we're, we're going to try something. So, um, Alec. You get to say goodbye and Merry Christmas first, and then I'm going to hang up on you. And then, Joel, you'll be next, and then I'm going to hang up on you. And then, Henry, we're going to see if you still have the same issue, and you'll get to say goodbye. Don't screw All this right. up. Well, <laughs> well, I'm first, so it, that's easy. There you go. Everybody else, that's the hard part. Please. Hey, uh, I, I do wish everybody happy holidays and Merry Christmas. Uh, I just hope that everybody gets their all their taxes, their accounting, their performance figures uh, together. Now that we're at the end of the year, this is a great time to do all of that and to uh, make plans for the next year. If you can't measure it, you can't improve it. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And thank you. Thank you for uh, all of your contributions to the show. And we're looking forward to more next year. All right, Joel, you're up. Uh, all right. Well, I, pretty much the same thing, you know, uh, Merry Christmas and happy holidays to everybody. And, Let's just forget about trucks for a week. <laughs> Good idea. I'm just done with it. I, I, I'm just going to forget about it. I'm going to come back Good. hopefully fresh. I got another day and I'm home and I'm just uh, I'm just done. So Good, Good um, idea. Love yeah, it. Yeah, Merry Christmas, everybody. All right, Merry Christmas. And, uh, again, thanks for, for everything you do for us, and I'm looking forward to a whole lot more. All right, Henry, it's your turn. Well, I want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Hope everyone gets home safe. Hope everyone keeps driving as gently as they've seeming to do this year. I don't know what's going on here, but the traffic's been beautiful. And um, be safe and be profitable. And Excellent. how did my mic sound now, Kevin? We're still getting that static. I'm going to have to figure out what that's all about. I don't get about. it because I'm using the same headset, same phone, same location, same everything. This, this static issue is one of the reasons we tried the other phone system and then it went down on us. But um, I'm going to have to work with them and see. It just occasionally we'll get one line like this that just you get this weird static sound. And the louder you try to talk, the more the static Almost covers you up. Well, how's that, how, how's that when I talk lower? See, that actually, there was no static when you said that. Okay, so i got to talk gently. Yeah, or we and can turn down volume or something. Voice. All right. Well, Henry, same to you. Thanks for uh, everything you do for us and looking forward to more next year. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. All right. And uh, Matt's going to get the final word. Matt doesn't get to say it, but he texted it to me, and I think it's fitting. Um, according to Matt, if you don't know what twin sticks and toothpicks means, you're not a real trucker. And with that, we will wrap this up and I will see you not next week, but the week after. Enjoy your holidays and we'll come back fresh and we'll hit it hard. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. Merry Christmas, everybody. We'll see you after vacation.